Hello, everyone. I sit here today with a heavy heart and a couple of announcements. Um, first and foremost, some good news. Anyone that is in the Chicago area, I um, encourage you to try and come out to the um, Mental Filmness Film Festival on October 15th at the Davis Theater, starting uh, at about 7 p.m. There's a terrific short film that I have seen and reviewed and recommended for the festival that's playing that uh, I caught at the Chicago Critics Film Festival, and that's called After a Love Story. And writer star Alyssa Thordeson will be in attendance for the Q&A. Also, there is a feature-length film that I've yet to see that will be playing called A Story Worth Living, featuring Vanessa Leonard. And both films are about breaking the stigma of uh, mental health, telling very sincere and incredible stories that I think you will uh, connect with in some way. And uh, it's, it's a very important passion project that uh, was all put together by the very talented, compassionate Sharon Gissy, who you might remember from the Todd Haynes and Chantal Ackerman episodes. So in addition to the live event that's taking place on October 15th at the Davis Theater, you'll be able to stream a number of the films selected for this festival starting on October 8th. So please support her work by visiting mentalfilmness.com because this is a, for a really great cause, something I, I do feel strongly about. And these films are, are, are undoubtedly important works from creative artists who have a lot to say about something that many people, including myself, struggle with. And speaking of struggling, it's going to be a little hard to get through what I have to say next without getting emotional. Um, if you followed me on social media, you probably already know where I'm going with this. Uh, but at the same time, I do have to talk about this before we get to the episode proper. Um, and it starts with gratitude to have known an incredibly kind, supporting, hilarious, intelligent film historian, critic, writer, commentator, based out of Chicago. And he was a frequent guest on this podcast for a reason. If you go back and listen to the many episodes he's appeared on, I'm going to create an entire separate sort of in-memoriam page for him soon, featuring all those links. Uh, You'll know why I had him on many times. I'm, of course, talking about the late, great Sergio Mims of the Chicago Film Critics Association, a dear friend, and if you lived in Chicago, loved movies, and frequented the Gene Siskel Film Center or the Music Box Theater, you likely crossed paths with him. And of course, this comes as a a real shock to many of us, including Bill Ackerman, who you will hear in this episode momentarily. Uh, And the original introduction that I recorded with Bill and Justin mentioned Sergio. Because the reason this episode came to be was because Sergio got in contact with me to say he needed to postpone the recording for the Terrence Davies uh, podcast that we were going to do alongside Brian Talrico. And of course, I was absolutely focused on your health and you're welcome to come back on when you're ready. Uh, So, yeah. He was going to be on this show soon because one of his very favorite films is The Long Day Closes by Terrence Davies. And I'd gotten word from friend and film critic, 
previous guest, of course, Eric Childress, who had Sergio on his um, Movie Madness podcast on a regular basis. Uh, he let me know that Sergio was recently diagnosed with colon cancer, but it seemed that he was in good spirits, certainly open to treatment. And, you know, we were optimistic that, you know, he was going to pull through, but that did not happen. He passed Wednesday, October 5th. And I found out about two two hours after Bill, Justin, and I had completed the recording of the Alan Moyle episode you're about to hear, which is also <laughs> an emotional, you know, discussion that I, I I tried my best not to repeat exactly why uh, a movie directed by Alan Moyle means so much to me, but it's certainly something that I think is in the spirit of Sergio, who would talk about how movies affected him deeply. And there's countless examples of that (laughs) throughout so many episodes of Movie Madness or other podcasts or other interviews he's done, including Bill Ackman's uh, amazing (laughs) interview for supporting characters that of course is going to be linked in the show notes here because that's a great way to get to know Sergio as a, as a person. Um, and I spoke to a lot about inspirations, you know, over the years, people like Eric Childress and Nick DiGilio and Dan Geyer. Um, but Sergio is very high up on that list, especially within this past decade when we crossed paths quite often at various screenings and just talked and most recently, we had a separate conversation about our love of Elaine May's A New Leaf and how that movie means more to me now than it ever has. And Sergio wouldn't just call movies movies or films. He called them pictures. And you, you definitely pick that up when you hear him on previous episodes. And he also was, you know, fearless, never, never held back when he wasn't a fan of something. As much as I want to continue just making this an an entire tribute um, and sing his praises, rightfully so, I have to thank him. You know, I mean, geez, his contributions to this show and many others. We also have to focus on the fact that he accomplished a lot throughout his life. And you can hear about that in the Supporting Characters interview and a number of other interviews as well. Um, But as a local black film critic, he broke a lot of ground and supported a number of black filmmakers, not just locally, but everywhere. Uh, And he is mostly responsible, I believe, for the inception of the Black Harvest Film Festival, which continues to this day, and they're going to be holding a tribute to Sergio in the weeks to come at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Of course, I'm going to let people know about that when we know more information. Uh, And he did a number of DVD and Blu-ray commentaries, written for a number of publications, hosted a classical music radio show on WHPK, had an avid passion for politics, and of course, many are just going to remember him as being this supportive and encouraging um, presence in the in the lives of film critics, as well as just this remarkable storyteller with 
quick wit and a sharp memory uh, about the cinema of years past and the many directors that he befriended or encountered over the years. In fact, he did have the pleasure of meeting Terrence Davies once, and really quickly, I wanted to play this clip uh, featuring him talking about that encounter during the outro of a bonus episode we recently did on Frank Perry's The Swimmer. So this is Sergio uh, in his own words. As, as I said, um, there are some films that move me. Yeah. But um, Monday closes. That's a special film. I saw myself as a mm. kid. And when I met Terrence Davies, I told him that. I said, that movie is me when I was 10. I don't know how you did it, but you, you, that was me as a kid. Okay, thank you so much to everybody for um, listening to this, because it's important that we... Um... remember Sergio and keep his memory alive. He is one of my favorite human beings to talk movies with. And he's someone who would go out of his way to find you in the theater, to talk with you about any number of things on his mind in a way that I'm never going to forget. And of course he told me to keep being a part of the Chicago film community, even if at times I struggle with keeping up or communicating my love of cinema. And he did so consistently in a way that was very inspiring and encouraging and he will be very very sorely missed so stay tuned for more tributes and links to come because he touched a lot of lives and his spirit lives on through the love of the arts and even on even his appearances on his show so we love you Sergio and thank you for being a part of um, many lives and I look forward to hearing your voice and commentaries in previous episodes and wherever you are I'm sure you're at peace and hopefully enjoying another rewatch of Blue Collar or uh, another Anthony Mann Western. Uh, thank you, everybody, and on to the show. And welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski. And I needed some assistance today in the form of a now recurring guest host that you've heard uh, on two excellent episodes recently. Welcome back, one of the best podcasters out there, who is kind enough to be a guest co-host, Mr. Bill Ackerman. Thank you for so, so much for having me back. Oh, thank you for coming back. Uh, Bill, would you be so kind enough to introduce the third voice that folks will be hearing today for this episode on Canadian director Alan Moyle? Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking, um, who who would I get to uh, to talk about a Canadian director? And the first person that occurred to me was Justin DeClue. And now Justin is someone I've featured on supporting characters. He's the director 
of uh, Teddy Bomb and, and Impossible Horror. Uh, he's a podcaster. Um, I, the show I most associate with him is Important Cinema Club, but he also does Bay Street Video podcasts and a number of others. Hmm. Uh, he's the author of Radioactive Dreams, The Cinema of Albert Pune. Uh, he's was a programmer at the Laser Blast Film Society, and he's the founder of Gold Ninja Video, uh, the boutique home video label. So he's got uh, and that's that's the short list of things <laughs> he's done. So uh, yeah, Justin DeClue, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill and Jim. Oh, what an honor! Yeah, yeah, this is this is this is really exciting. I'm I'm always happy to have a new voice, but uh, at the same time, you know, let's let people know about your uh, podcast, Important Cinema Club, because I've listened to a couple episodes now and you can consider me a subscriber and a fan. Uh, because I was so dismayed with Clerks 3, I felt like I needed, I needed to listen to somebody speak positively about uh, Kevin Smith's work. <laughs> and I listened to that episode of, of your show, but tell, tell people a little bit more about Important Cinema Club in case they're not familiar with it. Wait, you came to us to talk positively about Kevin <laughs> Well, that was, that was my initial thought was like, oh, yeah, I just... I'm like, uh-oh, get out of there. Run, Jim, run. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I, I, but at the same time, uh, yeah, there's he's, he hasn't done anything good in a long time, and I'm giving up on Kevin Smith, which is sad. <laughs> no, like a lot of, you know, people in their uh, mid-30s, me and my co-host Will Sloan were obsessed with Kevin Smith sure. at that specific... You know, point in time where he had clerks, small rats, all that stuff. And now we're going through the long disillusionment phase. Yes. And I think maybe what you're speaking of is a recent episode where we did a Kevin Smith extended universe episode. Right. Where That's we talked I mean. about yes, all yes. the films that he helped his friends make. Right. Including um, Vulgar. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you poor thing. Had to put yourself through. We tried that. to be very nice to these filmmakers. Right. <laughs> we didn't want to just get out there and rag on them. Oh no, no, but no, it's it's a great show, and you could like tell people a little bit about more the, like what the format is and how you uh, sort of come up sure. with. Sure, the, the theme. concept of the show is every episode is usually about a subject, and we make it kind of a introductory, um, you know, you know, all arounder about. It can be a director. It can be uh, just a subject in general. We did an episode on men in gorilla suits. Uh, it could be about like screenwriters. Basically anything that really interests us or anything we want to challenge ourselves by. And we go in saying, listen, some of these subjects we're not experts on and we're just discovering it. But we want it to be kind of a gateway to people to discover these kind of things and maybe get a chance. And like, you know, our episodes are usually about 45 minutes long to, you know, explore something that otherwise they couldn't or wouldn't have heard about because, you know, there's so much stuff coming at you at all times. And here you can check into the Important Cinema Club every week that we do all these subjects and we're always looking to like the movie. We're never like, oh boy, this is bad. Isn't this wild? And I think because we have that attitude, it is a little bit different than most podcasts like that that tackle so many things. Mm -hmm. And it's also, we do want to be like omnivores is that we don't have one particular path we like what we like, but we also want to, you know, do basically, as we like to joke, everything that has anything to do about cinema eventually. Yeah, and that's that's a great idea for sure. I mean, you keep, you know, for the most part, keep keep it positive. But uh, I, <laughs> you mentioned a whole episode on man gorilla suits. Now I got to see if you covered uh, Mask of the Red Death. Since I just saw that uh, in 35 millimeter uh, at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, and what a glorious uh, print it was! But certainly, that has a very memorable man in gorilla suit uh, sequence. <laughs> uh, but it's not like a focal point of the movie, so I don't know if how 
in depth. Now, is that. it a real gorilla in Mask of Red Death, or mm-hmm. is it a man in a gorilla suit it, in the movie? It is in de- which case, we frown upon that. It is a man in a gorilla suit. Within the context of the film? Mm. Mm. Kind of. There's nothing worse <laughs> than a gorilla being in a movie, and at the end they reveal that it is a dude in a gorilla suit. <laughs> a Scooby-Doo ending. Well, no, actually, you do know. You do know it is a man in a gorilla suit. Mm. Like, they, they, show, they show him putting it on. So, but... uh yeah, it's a it's a memorable moment in an v- incredible film by Roger Corman. That, oh yeah, Mask of Red Death, absolute classic. Oh boy, and to see that on the big screen too, uh, wow, phenomenal. But no, I thanks for uh, coming on the show, and certainly I encourage everybody to check out Important Cinema Club. Now, before we get to the director of this episode, I I know that people are probably a little surprised that okay, it's October, right? So why aren't we covering a horror director like we usually do? Well, the schedule got kind of shifted around. uh, And this also turned out to be, I would say, one of the busiest months that both Bill and myself have ever had. In lieu of the traditional What We Watch segment, and like I mentioned, since it is October, I have asked Bill and Justin to come up with some kind of outside-the-box horror recommendations for this spooky season. I don't want to do an episode that comes out in October and you know since we're not covering a horror director I still wanted to touch on horror in some way or another just because well there's Hooptober there's a lot of reasons and certainly people are doing the 31 days of horror uh, approach all over social media because yeah and hey get that shutter s- subscription if you want as well but I, I basically came up with a list of five titles. You know, I didn't really give any parameters outside of, well, just don't choose something like Halloween or Psycho, because <laughs> everybody knows about those movies, so... Ah, uh, I'm crinkling up my paper and throwing it away now. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to do it on the spot. Yeah, I know. We all want to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre for an hour, but uh, no, let's think of some titles that maybe people will have to go digging for a little bit, or at least... There's favorites of yours that you hope people will check out if they haven't already. So, yeah, since I've done some talking, let's let's start with uh, let's start with our guest, and then we'll go to Bill and end with me. Justin, what are some favorite horror movies that you recommend people seek out that uh, you know aren't normally ones we see on lists of favorites for this time of year? So, should I just let like my gut spill out and say all five now? Do you want to do round robin? <laughs> You know what? Let's do round robin. Let's do that. I haven't. Yeah. Let's instead of just making it a monologue style, let's do that. That might be fun. Well, first off, I'm going to be completely shameless and recommend a film that was released by Golden Ninja Video. And that's a film called A Sweet and Vicious Beauty. Uh, It came out a few years ago. Uh, I discovered it because I was looking up an action choreographer that uh, worked on a very indie film called Lethal Force that I really liked. And I was like, has he been up to anything lately? And I discovered he directed this film. It's available on Amazon Prime. Uh, you can watch it through their streaming network. It was made in 2012. And it's a gothic horror martial arts slasher film. Whoa. It is as wild as it sounds. It is long. This is the first thing I'd give people as a warning. It's two hours and 11 minutes. And it's because the director just has so much stuff he wants to show you. 
and it's super fun. Hmm. Super low budget, but it's also a period piece. So it's all shot in like a Western town of a guy that he knew, filled with like beautiful uh, dresses and costumes. The story is about a woman that lives in a big spooky house and she's killing people and sucking their soul through their decapitated heads. Hmm. And there's a woman in town who has to try to stop her with martial arts and sword fighting. That sounds like a blast. I'm all for a good sort of genre mashup. <laughs> and yeah. you can check it out, uh, like I said, on Amazon Prime, or you can just uh, order the Gold Ninja Video Blu-ray, which is packed with special features, and also two feature films that the director made that are not available anywhere, because he made them and said, eh, none of the distributors are giving me very good deals, so I'm just going to sit on them. And one of them is a Super 8 feature that he made that's basically basket case, including stop motion, uh, if there was also action scenes in it. <laughs> So we'll check that out. <laughs> Bill? All right. Bill. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to have to buy that uh, that Blu-ray because I, uh, I have my uh, Gold Ninja video collection here and I'm going to add oh. to it. Well, thank you so much. Nice. <laughs> but what horror movie are you going to wow us with? I'm, I have my pen and paper handy ready to go. Okay. Well, you probably have seen this one, um, Justin. I, maybe Jim also. But uh, uh, the first one I thought of was uh, Pigs from 1973. Oh, um, so good. It's oh. the second feature from uh, from the director uh, Mark Lawrence, who is better known as a uh, character actor. Uh, it's about an emotionally unstable woman on the run who uh, is staying at a, an out of the way diner uh, while she's on the road, and that diner is run by a uh, an ex carnival worker who uh, has a a stable behind or a pen behind the diner with uh, where he has a, a group of pigs that he uh, feeds with corpses. He uh, he acquires some grave digging, and uh, I don't want to say the whole plot, but it's just this eerie, quirky, slow burn kind of uh, early '70s horror film. I mean, if you're a fan of things like Let's Scare Jessica to Death or The Witch Who Came from the Sea, uh, it's uh, you know it's 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 a neat little sleeper. Um, I think uh, Stephen Thrower probably writes about it in Nightmare USA, and there's a uh, a Blu-ray through Vinegar Syndrome. I think it might be on maybe Tubi or one of those sites, so you can find it streaming as well but uh i don't know it's i mean it's one that it's funny with like with rare horror films i mean i think that horror f- fans tend to be real kind of uh some some are really obsessive and go deep digging uh and, and it's kind of hard to stump a horror hardcore person i think a lot of people might know pigs but if you haven't seen it or just you know haven't seen it in a while i think it's a good uh good little sleeper that holds up wow i'm pretty sure i might have rented that one at some point and was was trauma involved? Which yes, just trauma was yeah. involved. Trauma uh, put really out cool. the version that uh, it's it's funny because it, it, that's the version I saw first, and then Mark Lawrence's director's cut was restored for the Vinegar Syndrome release, and it's quite different as far as like the how they begin. And uh, I actually wrote an article on it for Diabolique that breaks down the differences oh, um, cool. between the two versions, but. Even if you've seen the uh, trauma version, which is kind of marketed like an animal attack film, but it's really not doing that so yeah. much. It's closer to a uh, kind of a neurotic House of Psychotic Women style, like neurotic female horror. But uh, yeah, no, it's 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 pretty it's pretty uh, remarkable little film in terms of like sound design and just uh, yeah. I, I, if you um, yeah, if you like things like you know uh, Messiah of Evil, like those kind of quirky slow burn 70s weird horror uh it's in that ballpark i'm going to, have to add that to my hooptober list and re- revisit it because yeah my memory is a little fuzzy on it but 
Well, then and that also won't be the first time we bring up House of Psychotic Women, I think, in our conversation today. Um, <laughs> we'll see. But, um, well, okay, okay. like, I, I, again, you mentioned this already, Bill, that the fact that, I, you know, horror freaks out there probably have seen quite a number of titles. And certainly this one, I, I, I bring it up again, <laughs> just to emphasize my love of it. But I, I, I'm 100% sure that every person listening to this show probably has seen it because I've recommended it and have even done an entire episode on the film. And that is Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried. Um, mm. And it's a remarkably creepy film about a small town that has uh, hmm, a, a very interesting mortician, let's say, who uh, may or may not be wrecking havoc on, on various corpses for some kind of special purpose that we later learn more about. Um, and if you've ever stayed in the hospital, you might want to keep an eye on that beautiful nurse, if you know what I mean. Emphasis on I. Uh, and Gary Sherman, in general, he just happens to be one of my favorite horror directors. I plan to cover his work in the future for sure, because, you know, I've brought up titles like Lisa, and I even have an affinity for Poltergeist 3, as ridiculous as it is. Uh, certainly because of the effects involved in that film, I find that an interesting revisit from time to time. But no, Dead and Buried is just, oh, it really, really gets to me. And the more I see it, the more I appreciate it. And I talked at length about it with um, Dave Canfield. And there's a beautiful 4K Blue Underground release of it now. It's like, what, three discs long (laughs) or something? Mm -hmm. So everybody should check out Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried if they haven't already. And I'm pretty sure they have. (laughs) I once saw a screening of Poltergeist 3 with Gary Sherman in attendance. And I think he did this a couple of times where they would stop the movie and then he would explain how he did every mirror gag in the film he was just up on stage as it played it was amazing yeah i would have loved to have attended that for sure uh so i have another horror movie here Uh, this is one that i showed last year i do like a 24 hour horror movie mind melter twitch stream marathon and i'm always looking for like horror films that you know not too many people have seen and this one not many people have seen it because it's never been officially released but you can find it on youtube it's called In the Dark from 2000. Uh, it's a very generic name, but boy, is this film special. It is shot on mini DV, and it's an adaptation, the only one of a Richard Lehman novel. Are you guys familiar with that author? I don't nope. think so, no. He, he was like a splatter guy in the 90s. He had very generic um, book titles like, you know, In the Dark or The <laughs> Cellar, and they would be like paperbacks. But when you would read them, you'd be like, oh, my God, this is so disturbing. <laughs> And this is an adaptation of one of those novels. And the reason it's never been released is that they didn't have permission to do it. And <laughs> so they made the movie and Lehman saw it and he's like, this is amazing. Like, but they didn't have the rights. So it never got an official release. But it's up on YouTube now. The plot is a woman that works at a library finds like a piece of paper with instructions to do something that's kind of disturbing. And she decides to, okay, I'm going to play this game. And as she plays, things get wilder and wilder and wilder until it reaches a pretty unforgettable climax. Um, Most of the people who saw the movie when I showed it during that stream said it was like the best movie they saw out of all, like, I don't know, 14 that I showed. And it's one that not many people know about, even though it's just one click away. If you search In the Dark 2000 uh, feature film, it'll pop up right up on YouTube. Wonderful. I'm going to check this out. Me too. Perfect. That's the point. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so I, I guess the next one I'll, I'll go with um, film I saw for the first time uh, this year uh, called Morris County. It's from 2009. Have either of you seen this one? It's a horror no, anthology. No. It's um, it's directed by Matthew Garrett, and uh, it's three stories. It's kind of, I mean, one is a story about a teenage girl. The next one is a about a married couple with issues, and the third is about a retired woman uh, in denial. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything with them, but it's kind of, I guess you could kind of compare it to something like Family Portraits. Yes, the, um, I was thinking the, of that the, when the, you were the, describing it, yeah. Yeah, a little bit like Family Portraits uh, merged with like the Todd Salons of like happiness storytelling era. Like it's it's quite dark. It's the Jersey setting also maybe makes you think of that. But it's uh, yeah, it's all three stores are really compelling. And uh, yeah, if you like things like Family Portraits or, or Salons, but uh, with a with a horror twist, um, uh, it's worth checking out. I, I think um, there's a. I think it's on Tubi now. Um, there is a DVD as well. And since we mentioned House of Psychotic Women, Kayla Janice interviews Matt Garrett on the commentary for that. Ooh. So, um, Ooh. yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a neat little sleeper. And uh, so, yeah, I would try to think of things that people might not be as familiar with. <laughs> so, Well, yeah, I'll definitely look into that one as well. Another I'd recommend, though, I, I, I feel like I need to watch it because I might have watched it when I was sleepy, but that kind of added to the experience. Um, it's uh, Speaking of j- kind of a genre mashup, this is a film called Strange Behavior, a.k.a. Dead Kids from 1981 by Michael Laughlin who uh, actually would go on to make another strange movie, a film called Strange Invaders. So apparently he likes the word strange in his title. Uh, I believe it was supposed to be part of a trilogy, and there was like one more they never got oh, to make. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And is, isn't that also written by Bill Condon? Before yeah, he, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was entirely successful, but it, in, in a weird way, it sort of reminds me of Killer Party, where it just like has different elements of the genre sort of spliced in there at random times that kind of, I don't know, it, it, it appealed to me at least, even if sometimes it was totally all over the place. But um, now it's like, I guess, a, a series of killings are targeting local teenagers in this small, peaceful town. And um, the sheriff, played by the great Michael Murphy, uh, suspects that the killer is connected somehow with the local college's psychology department. And there's just something sinister going on with their research program all about behavioral control and unusual experiments and things like that. Uh, it's just, it's again, it, it, much like a movie I'll bring up later, It's there's a lot of things going on and certainly not everything is fully developed and fleshed out. But in, in a way, that's kind of its charm and its appeal. Like it just... It worked on me, at least at the time. It did feel like kind of a fever dream approach to a horror movie. Uh, and I believe Louise Fletcher is in it as well. Yeah. Is this the, is this the second film in a row from the early 80s where someone is stabbed in the eye? Apparently <laughs> so. Too. Yeah, you got You're an right. stabbing theme going here, Jim. I guess so. I should, I should have. Yeah, I should keep up with that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, yeah, just, it, I, my, next I have that music. my next movie uh, is Beyond. Full, yeah. I mean, Zombie. You got it. You stole it from me. You got it. <laughs> I have that song stuck in my head from the musical number scene. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. A very memorable yeah. moment. And a great score by Tangerine Dream. That's Ooh, cool. always good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my next one, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Indian cinema, and I feel it never gets a fair shake, mostly because people look at the running times and they're like, oh, boy, almost <laughs> two hours and a half for most of them. <laughs> but uh, this one, and it's also tough because um, a lot of Indian films don't have English titles because, you know, they feel they don't need to. 
So it's tough to get kind of in with like international audience. But this one has a title really easy to remember. It's called Pizza from 2012. <laughs> and like it's, it's also tough because the poster doesn't really tell you what it's about. And the um, description, it, the story is about a pizza delivery boy lands in mysterious circumstances and how it works a dramatic change in his life. A very different thriller, which will make you sweat. That does not say what it is. It's a ghost movie. And but it's not what you think it is. And it's one that I will say people like check out. But if you sit down and watch it, watch it to the end, because it's one of those movies that when it finishes, you're going to be like, oh, my God, I never saw that coming. And it's a blast. It's a movie that was popular enough. It got like two remakes in different languages, yet no American remake because, you know. English language audiences don't really know Indian cinema that well. But once you're going to watch it, you're going to go, oh, man, if I'm a filmmaker, I'm going to rip this off. No one will know it's that good. So Ooh. pizza from 2012. Well, I like pizza. Man. So I, I'm curious about this for sure. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to have to see that one as well. And I do like pizza. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, everyone yeah. loves pizza. <laughs> if you don't, you're a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you gave away the ending. I know. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this, this this next one, I think Jim, you were kind of lukewarm on this one. I saw you gave this kind of a mixed review on Letterbox, but I do really have a, a soft spot for the Boogans from 1981. Mm. Um, yeah. This is um, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, hybrid. Like it's it's it, it feels a little bit like a um, like a My Bloody Valentine ish like. Uh, slasher movie kind of feel like it's likable characters in a wintry setting but maybe crossed with the um more like a famous monsters creature feature throwback kind of feeling it's it's you know dealing with um uh characters uh, going into an old uh abandoned silver mine that's sealed up and un- uh, you know when they unseal it there's uh you know creatures living there uh it's you know not kind of reinventing the wheel as far as like you know the premise but uh it's got such likable characters in it that it's you know the the first half where it's just them kind of goofing off uh, is so is so charming that uh, you know and and the monster stuff does work in a, like you know pretty standard you know horror movie fashion but I, I just really like have a, a real fondness for it I I was kind of surprised because I I owned it for like fifteen years without ever watching <laughs> it because it just it just didn't seem like something that was going to really hold my attention I think Stephen King might have been a fan of it it used to be. Um, hard harder to see i feel like it kind of sat out the the home video era a little bit like i had a bootleg of it but i don't know that it had a dvd release until kind of late in the day yeah um, i think it, all of films put it out didn't they on blu-ray yeah yeah hmm. it, it had a blu-ray um and it may have had a vhs like a belated one but it, hmm. it was one that wasn't as easy to see when i was a teenager and i i so i i had to buy it a bootleg at a convention but yeah it's i don't know i think it's just um it's one that maybe because the title is kind of silly and it's, you know, it's monsters in a cave. It's nothing like that's going to be that classy, but I think it's a lot of fun. And um, so I'm, I'm going to recommend that one if people haven't seen it um, or, and like things like, you know, early eighties horror, it's um, you know, it's, it's a fun hangout movie. It's Rebecca Balding. Who's um, uh, if you know the film, the silent scream, uh, you might know her from that, oh, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's a good, it's a good little movie. I should watch it again. Maybe I was not in a good mood when I saw it. But I just remember it meandered a little bit. Like it took a while. It does meander, but I, I yeah. but whether you find I, it meandering, I'm not deny the Boogans does meander. <laughs> yeah, and doesn't it do the thing where you kind of see the monsters really early on, and then it's like, all right, that's your taste. Now wait to the end. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure it has its charms. I just 
I think I saw it like seven years ago and my memory's going. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's glossier than The Strangeness, which mm-hmm. is the other Monsters in the Cave movie from that period that I like. But uh, yeah. Oh, I really like The Strangeness, especially yeah. when you read the um, kind of the background that, you know, was discovered when they did the Code Red DVD and the big long article in uh, Nightmare USA. Um, yeah, yeah, that's how it really elevates it. that movie. Yeah, no, it's really good. Um, that's another one that people should check out. But yeah, do a double feature, you know, Monsters in the Cave. And throw in the Deadly Spawn if you want just low-budget monster movies of that period. Gosh, I'm, I'm so tempted to switch up. Maybe I should just to continue with the theme. I don't know. Let me see. Hmm. Uh, I'll follow your heart, Jim. You don't need to <laughs> well, okay. This, this next one, again, I'm pretty sure must have come up in the past on, on an episode. At the very least, I know when... Uh, Patrick and Gabe did their horror movie show uh, spectacular. I voted for this film and I'd just seen it like almost practically as a bootleg, I think, before it got a proper release fairly recently. I'm not sure it put out the Blu-ray, but I'm talking about Next of Kin, not to be confused with the Patrick Swayze film of the same name. This is an Australian film from 1982 that, like I said, I think I've mentioned it here and there as being little Suspiria-esque, a little, little Shining, but it's, it is, again, it builds. It's much more of a slow burn, uh, and for me, it, it effectively builds to a, a very exciting climax with a couple of almost Sam Raimi-like camera movements that just made me happy, but it's got a lot of creepy dread and tension along the way. This, this, this young woman inherits a retirement home and, and people start dying or drowning randomly, unexpectedly. There's strange occurrences and mysterious deaths. Uh, and I don't know, I, I thought of it as kind of being an unexpected meditation on death and aging while not forgetting in the end to be a wild genre film. Uh, I mean, maybe less horror, but it, it you know, the, it's certainly creepy. It certainly gets under your skin as you, as oh, I'm a big fan of next to kin. That movie yeah. rules. I think it was umbrella that put it out on Blu-ray. Oh really? Okay. Cause it's an Australian film and that's yeah, that what they sense. deal in. Yeah. Yeah. And this a North American, was it Severin? Oh, Severin put it out. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I think they both that's did. I, I have. Yeah. 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 No, highly uh, recommend it. So, you know, you've been watching all these feature films and you just want to slow down a little bit. You know, watch something uh, a little bit shorter and maybe perhaps a little bit more public access. And that's <laughs> why I have to recommend a film that I showed during my horror movie, Mind Melter. And this is one, I think just like a bunch of friends were logging in on Letterboxd and I'm like, what? what is this? And it's a film called Halloween Party from 1989. It was made for like public access cable television in Connecticut by seemingly a bunch of high schoolers. And it's just like a simple slasher film, but it'll have that like nostalgic throwback to like making films with your friends that, you know, you hear them go action before scene starts or is it done? And then it like cuts away. (laughs) And it's a film that also ends with like five minutes of all the cast members like dancing in like whatever the public (laughs) access like station was. I think they do the monster match. It was uh, such a big hit when I showed it that like we watched it at the end of all the movies that we watched. Like, let's watch Halloween Party again. <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I have not seen that one, but I, see, I'm, I'm just going to do a marathon of all Justin's picks. Apparently, when, when yeah. This is over. <laughs> I, I'm trying to stump talk about Yeah, talk about deep dives. Wow. Yeah. 
Uh, that's what I would have to do is like we did a screening series called the Laser Blast Film Society in Toronto where we were always trying to find like those deep cuts. Right. And because they're so deep, no one would come. They didn't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> um, so I'll just say without going in depth on any of them, um, I'll just mention a, a filmmaker um, that a couple of years ago I was on the Made for TV Mayhem podcast uh, that my friend Amanda Reyes hosts with Dan Budnick and um, – Nathan Johnson, and uh, they had me on to talk about the uh, the the films of John Llewellyn Moxie, and uh, horror fans might know him either as the director of The City of the Dead, aka Horror Hotel, uh, oh, or mm. as the director of The Night Stalker, the uh, the TV movie pilot that the uh, launched the uh, Kolchak uh, television series. Um, but he. When researching for that episode, I watched a whole series of horror films that he directed, and without exception, they were all really enjoyable. And I don't know how many people would have seen them. Um, and you know, his best stuff is like either you know mid seventies to early eighties. And I know a lot of people listening are probably fans of theatrical horror from that time period. And obviously, this is not going to have the sex or explicit uh, gore or violence that you would get in theatricals from that time. But if you like the atmosphere and the aesthetic of horror films from that period, um, but, you know, can, can forgive the fact that these are going to be more situated on character and maybe a little bit more on melodrama. Um, but they do their best to evoke whatever was going on in theatrical horror of their day. So I'll just say that um, in addition to the night stalker, which yeah, I think might be pretty w- widely seen, um, Home for the Holidays, No Place to Hide, The Strange and Deadly Occurrence, I Desire, A Taste of Evil, and The House That Wouldn't Die are all really uh, good little slow burn creepy kind of films. Um, like I Desire is a vampire movie with um, David Naughton right around the time he made American Wealth in London. Uh, no Place to Hide is almost kind of like a slasher movie. It's a little bit almost prom night-ish. Um, something like Strange and Deadly Occurrence is, is closer to haunted house feeling. Um, same with the house that wouldn't die and home for the holidays is kind of a proto slasher. It's almost kind of predicting the things that you'd find like a decade later, as far as the, uh, the body count type film. And, uh, yeah, I, I just found like all of them really, uh, pleasurable that I think most of them are probably on YouTube. I think they're probably all like around like 80 minutes or so. They're not like, uh, real time intensive, uh, commitments. So if you have exhausted all the big guns, of 70s and 80s early 80s horror um you might you might uh, want to check some of these films out all the john llewellyn moxie films uh another yeah. that i believe both myself and patrick uh rapole happen to be huge fans of is donald camels is that how you say camel uh, mm-hmm. the eye why did the eye speaking of eye again gosh what is going on well i did go to the optometrist recently maybe that's why what's <laughs> oh, influenced true terror right <laughs> i hate it which looks better, one or two? Three oh, or four? I don't know. <laughs> they look the same. Exactly. I know. It was terrifying. Um, now I'm getting to that age where I need readers, which is actually scary. Um, but yeah, this is from, I believe, 87, and it's tonally really unusual. It's it's wildly surprising. It veers into giallo-like territory. It's about a woman played by Kathy Moriarty that is informed by the police that her husband, uh, played by David Keith, who uh, is a sound man who specializes in these insane audio systems, (laughs) might be responsible for 
a series of gruesome murders in their little uh, secluded Arizona communities. Uh, Arizona, speaking of Palm of the Volume. Um, but yeah, it's if memory serves, it's like this, this is just out there and it has really incredible cinematography, but it's kind of an enigma. Um, I just, I mean, I, I just remember being like really unnerved by everything in this film, but also just like, wow, I didn't think it would go there at the same time. So it's a very surprising horror film that uh, I, I think now again has gotten a recent release that uh, people should check out. So yeah, that's a special yeah, film. No. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. It's funny. Um, one of the least respected film critics I can think of is Peter Travers from Ooh. Rolling Stone. And I remember though, as a teenager, he had a, uh, he had a column that was like, like underrated or offbeat horror films that he recommended. And, and white of the eye was on there. And that's how I actually heard of it as a teenager was uh, through Peter oh. Travers. Of all wow. People. I wouldn't have thought tra- that. Peter Travers fan back in the day. No, I just had a subscription to Rolling Stone. I mean, I was a teenager and it's like I didn't have a lot of magazines. And I just remember like because I was a horror fan as a kid. And that was just one of the few that I hadn't already seen on his list. <laughs> and so that would maybe check it out. And yeah, no, I, I mean, Donald Camel only has, I think, the four features and like maybe a short film or two. But uh, that's probably that and Demon Seed are both pretty mm-hmm. solid, coherent horror films. I mean, um I think maybe the most widely seen thing he directed was uh, the co-direction of performance with Nicholas Rogue. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, both all, both of his horror films and actually uh, Wild Side, his director's cut of that, the erotic thriller, um, his whole filmography, I think, is pretty is pretty solid. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big Donald Camel fan. He's great. Uh, so for the last one, I'll recommend I'm going to go back to the old gold ninja video. Well, shameless plug, <laughs> wrap things up. <laughs> And I'm going to recommend a film called Killer Queen. And this was discovered by my pal, Peter Koplowski. Um, we used to do a, a little film festival in Toronto called What the Film Fest, where we basically play all the films that he would stumble upon uh, that he really couldn't play at any other festival <laughs> because <laughs> they'd be like, what is this? And Killer Queen is a shot on Super 8 movie in Toronto from just a couple of years ago made by an Iranian filmmaker. It's kind of like Miss 45-ish if it was directed by Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> so it's got like this dreamy, um, you know, time-shuffled narrative. And you're not quite sure, like, wait, is this supposed to be a joke or is it not? And so it's really delightful in that way. And yeah, so I put it out. The only way to see it, I think, is the Blu-ray that I put out. And so check it out, goldninjavideo.com. Killer Queen, it's called. And I'm a big fan. Actually, you know what? I'm going to slip a, a sixth one. Because as I was talking, I'm like, oh, there's one horror movie I have to recommend. If you can't see any of the ones I set up to now, you got to see uh, The Nobodies. Have you guys heard about this movie? Hmm. I've heard of it. I, I, not, I, I can't remember. Have I? S- tell, tell me. I, I may have seen it, but I, I'm not sure. So it's uh, basically it's bookended with a documentary about a young uh, filmmaker couple in Alabama who committed suicide after their film premiered and uh, what what how, the way the film plays out and it's a it's a like not real it's a mockumentary is you see people who knew the filmmaking couple like talk about them talk about the movie that they made and then you know the bulk of the film is made up of clips of the film and the film is like the grimiest shot on video buildless non-actors thing that you've ever seen and you wouldn't for a second think it was fake like that's how good it is like the slasher they filmed pumpkin for only six hundred dollars so not only is it like a great 
you know, um, the throwback to shot on video films of like the early 90s where everybody was doing it in their small town. It's also like a really moving documentary about like what it means to be an artist in a place that doesn't appreciate it and how the people around you react to these forms of expression you have. And like it ends in uh, like a, a monologue that everyone who sees it is brought to tears at the end wow. of it. And it's a real shame that it never got to find its audience because they sold it to Troma, who <laughs> did release a DVD in the wrong aspect ratio, but it's really hard to get now and it basically lives only on their streaming service. Hmm. I haven't seen it, um, but you may have talked to me about it when we did supporting characters. I'm trying Probably, to remember. Yeah. I definitely have heard you talk about it before. I've either heard you talk about it on uh, on your podcast or on mine. But uh, yeah, I still have not seen it. it. It still sounds amazing. Yeah, from 2017, if people want to check it out. The uh, writer-director actually just released two films uh, recently that played the festival circuit. Uh, the third Saturday in October, part five. And then with some money he had left after that movie, he made a whole other film, The Third Saturday in October, the first part of the series. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, everybody I follow on Letterboxd, I just looked it up, gives it kind of a rave review. So, geez, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious more than ever now. Thanks. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Um, so I'll just say like, well, as a side note, I'm not going to talk about it, but one film that I remember Justin mentioning when I interviewed him that, uh, I went and checked out after the episode and I really thought it was a lot of fun, uh, I, I is, uh, Rise of the Animals, the, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is, a, a really charming, uh, micro budget animal attack film, um, and I was thought about talking about The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, one of my favorite zombie movies. But I, mm. I, again, with horror fans might all know that one. So I'll just say, um, since I mentioned John Llewellyn Moxie, another horror director that I thought could have been one of the great horror directors of his generation. And I haven't really seen much from him since the two that I fell in love with. But he has sequels to both of them that I haven't seen in the last two years. But the director is Andrew Trauke, I think is how you say it. Um, and he directed two of the best animal attack films, uh, Black Water with the Crocodile oh, from 2007 and 2010's The Reef with the Great White Shark. And I think that these are um, like just the one-two punch of those two films. I think he could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of the masters of horror type big directors i think that both of them are really scary and effective and not cheesy i can't speak for blackwater abyss or the reef stalker his more <laughs> recent sequels to both but the the original films i think are really terrific um you know uh just you know modest not cheesy scary movies that uh, use real animals to achieve the effect i mean i don't know if there's also any kind of I don't remember there being any CGI. It just feels like um, just kind of more grounded, you know, for these kind of films. But Blackwater and The Reef, um, if you are into those you know, people getting attacked in the water type, you know, horror movies, those are uh, two of the best ones I've seen. Holy cow. You guys just went so outside the box. You went you you both did went above and beyond. You did your homework. <laughs> you both get A pluses. That was just oh, thank an you. incredible list. Yeah. Um Finally, for me, we have a British horror film that I believe Arrow put out not too long ago from 1988 called Dream Demon. And we all know how much 
yeah, we all know how much I love movies about dreams and night terrors and anything and and the subconscious. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm guessing that the filmmakers involved with this uh, saw Nightmare on Elm Street and let's say, hey, let's do that, <laughs> pretty much. But you know, it's it's about a young woman that's. Um, about to be married and certainly experiencing a lot of concerns and panic about that and begins having terrifying dreams about demons. Uh, and when she wakes up, however, uh, these demons seem to be uh, fully manifested and they begin to commit gruesome murders. So yeah, it's, you know, th- that plot has probably been, you know, a part of many movies of this era and certainly like I mentioned Elm street or bad dreams or things like that, but there's, it's very surreal. The, the dreams themselves are what stand out. They're very hallucinatory. Um, I, I, I want to say that one of them in particular reminded me of the, uh, Tom Petty video for don't come around here no more, <laughs> which <laughs> yep, it, absolutely which had a real, like, 80s music video vibe yes yes and i'm a sucker for that i i i grew up in that era i love music videos from that era so it it explains like this just sort of hits all the right buttons for me it's like this is total jim nip when uh when you watch this it's you know it's kind of got a little bit of a head scratcher of an ending um but what it lacks in originality i think it just makes up with kind of weird stuff (laughs) in summation feel like I'm giving a graduation speech now. Uh, but no, I the reason all these films for me came up is a special one. So all the titles I, I brought up, Dead and Buried, Strange Behavior, Next of Kin, White of the Eye, and Dream Demon, you can stream all of them right now via a link in the show notes thanks to the Criterion channel. Yes, the Criterion channel has put out uh, for this month of October an entire uh, channel dedicated to 80s horror which is truly special. And they have a lot of great titles there besides the ones I even brought up, including the one that scarred me for, for life, uh, Henry portrait of a serial killer. So yeah, there's a lot of great titles, including the ones I just mentioned. So awesome. And they also have the keep go be disappointed all over again by watching the keep (laughs) on the criterion channel. Oh yes. Yeah. That was definitely bad. It can't be bad. Right. I just texted someone about the keep like an hour ago because my friend Sam Deegan is in the Wikipedia page for that for some reason. And so oh, cool. I tell it. <laughs> oh, she's wow. like, get me out of there. <laughs> no, no, she, she, she's a fan. So she's probably psyched, but uh, yeah, she's quoted on the Boogans page and that's how I, I'm like, Oh my God, Sam, you're on the Boogans Wikipedia page. You can retire now. Boogans for life. <laughs> Yay. Oh, that's great. No, let's, Let's go. Let's let's move forward, right? Let's go yeah. on. To, let's get on to the director of this episode here, someone that is, I've mentioned many times, <laughs> and is kind of responsible for, in some ways, saving my life. And I've had the pleasure of telling him that. Let's talk about Canadian filmmaker Mr. Alan Moyle. Alan Moyle. That's the director we're talking about <laughs> for this episode. 
So I mean, Alan Moyle is interesting to be described as a Canadian director because he definitely is. I mean, his first film, The Rubber Gun, was done in Canada in Montreal, and you can feel it, you know, pouring out mm-hmm. of every frame of that film. But he quickly no transitioned into being basically a Hollywood guy for most of the films where then he fought with some producers and, you know, stuff like Pump Up the Volume and Times Square. Those feel like such American films when it's really yes. an outsider making them, tricking people into thinking they're from a Canadian auteur. No, I, yeah, that's, see, this is what's interesting for me is that I focused so hard, no pun intended, on Pump Up the Volume. Uh, and even, even when I was ready to talk with him, I didn't necessarily go back and go, okay, I, I you know, I have to see some of the uh, pre Times Square films that he made, only because the quality I kept coming across was pretty bad. <laughs> for, oh, yeah. The rubber for, gun only exists on a city TV broadcast. Yes, That's exactly. the only version that exists, which anyone who lived in Canada will know city TV as like city TV everywhere. They would play these kind of like low budget Canadian films because we had mm-hmm. a pretty strict. Um, you know, content quotient that they had to hit. So they would just, you know, in the middle of the night, play all of these now very hard to see Canadian films to fill up their airtime. Yeah. Justin, I know that Jim and I are, you know, of that pump up the volume generation and you might be maybe more of the Empire Records generation, but do do you remember... Empire Records generation though that's I'm still a little too young for that. Well what what was your what was your first encounter with Moyle's work and is is he better known in Canada like as a director? I mean nope. he's no. not really known in Canada. He doesn't get talked about that much. Mm. I think maybe because unlike a lot of Canadian directors, he did not um heed the siren song of television because usually you make like one or two films and then you're like, well, TV is my business now. And this is all I'm going to do, which keeps you kind of in the conversation because you're usually known by crews if you're working in town and stuff like that. But Alan Moyle, uh, Weirdsville was basically his last big feature and he hasn't really done anything since then. So he's not really spoken about that much. Even a film like The Rubber Gun, you'll see it in lists of movies when you're talking about Canadian stuff. That's how I came across it. But it, it's just not available. Like no one really cares. It's just because a fan put it up on YouTube off of this uh, VHS recording that anyone can really watch it uh, now at all. I I feel like if someone hadn't done that, it would probably be one of those films I'd have on a list that I have to go to the Canadian archives to watch and like request a VHS (laughs) copy, which I've done for a number of Canadian films. Cause you know, our, uh, unfortunately, you know, the institutions who are usually supposed to take care of this, you don't really care that much. But the rubber gun feels like something that is uh, primed to be released by, you know, Canadian International Pictures or something like that. Yeah. Well, before yeah. the before the rubber gun. Um, yeah, it was just around the time that Alan Moyle had turned, I believe, 30. He he started out as an actor in a film called Montreal, Maine, which was mm-hmm. the work of an artist director named Frank Vitale. Uh, and very low budget, to say the least. Uh, and it's a challenging watch in just the creepiness of it, possibly. But then again, it's not necessarily explicitly portrayed that way. Uh, it kind of reminded me of, um, I believe it's the French film Sundays and Sibylle. Sibylle? I always forget how to pronounce that last name, but or the, the character's name in that movie. But it's a, it's a similar movie about a connection between two people, uh, very different ages, but society is very much against them even spending time together, even if it's platonic. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're watching this film wondering, 
does Frank have a strong attraction towards this 12-year-old named Johnny who uh, is clearly identifying and connecting with an older crowd and just, you know, precocious, wise beyond his years, more or less. Uh, but this is a film that is, yeah, it's it, it's very different than The Rubber Gun. It, it's more dramatic and more streamlined, and the narrative is a little bit more accessible. And for me, it was interesting to hear Leonard Cohen get name-checked at one point, for obvious reasons, but uh, I, I found myself slowly engaged by it, and yeah, it's... It's an interesting work, especially when Alan Moyle has this strong friendship with Frank and they're kind of questioning whether or not they want to be intimate together. That's a fascinating scene with them in the van together. Yeah, I, I would just jump in and say that I think in the 70s, Alan Moyle would probably be better known as an actor than a mm-hmm. director because right. um, one credit of his that's not on IMDb, but he's he's got a bit part in Joe, the um, the John G. Avildsen film. Uh, he's one of the hippies at the end of that movie. And he also shows up in Outrageous, which was a big uh, kind of gay cult film of the mid 70s, just distributed by Cinema 5. Danny Perry writes a chapter on it in cult movies. And he's also got a bit part in Rabid, the David Cronenberg movie. Um, and he's an actor in things like Montreal, Maine and Rubber Gun. And uh, so he's 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 pretty prominent in front of the camera. I mean, is as much as he is, you know, as, as a writer and uh, as, a, as a director at, at that point. And th- those early films with Frank Vitale and Stephen Lack and, uh, you know, they, I guess, um, uh, I don't know if Justin, you know more about this than I do, but like they, um, like there was like a kind of a group of of artists that were doing plays and doing kind of independent films, kind of based around the St. Lawrence Boulevard uh, district. Um, that these films almost kind of might kind of echo the hybrid documentary style that comes much later as far as like people are playing characters like not totally dissimilar from themselves like sometimes they're using the their real names uh in, in you know as the characters that they're playing and there's there's um scripts to be followed like something like Montreal Maine is a fiction but it's i guess based in some kind of real situations and the dialogue is improvised it feels um uh, yeah, like countercultural in a way that I mean, some of the Hollywood films of Alan Moyle will be talking about, you know, certainly have a lot of reverence for outsiders and countercultural kind of thinking. But these feel like countercultural art in a way yeah, that the like, other films yeah. do not. The Rubber Gun is definitely inspired by the films of John Cassavetes, like the loose structure oh, yeah. that can be followed when they're making the film. But they really let the actors kind of run with whatever material they want. I mean, The Rubber Gun, what it results in is a film that feels very um, scattershot just because you're getting like scenes here or there at the narrative kind of pushes in different ways. And I think what's interesting about uh, The Rubber Gun in the context of Alan Moore's other films is it's kind of looking down upon these ideas of rebels trying to do their own thing. While his other films are all about groups of rebels finding themselves and kind of defining themselves and finding ways to express themselves, the rubber gun is kind of like the end point of that. Like that someone else is going to come in, they're going to push you out because your time is gone, old man. And, (laughs) you know, somebody else is going to come and may result in the destruction of the unit that was so important uh, for you all this time. And it's interesting that this is like the purest film he made in the sense that I read some interviews with him and he said that improvisation was always really important for him, even if it was a little bit difficult to find in his Hollywood films. 
And because of that, he really, you know, butted heads with a lot of the producers, which is stories that you'll hear over and over again, specifically in something like Times Square. Oh, yeah, that's that's without a doubt. And I, I think when I talked with him, he mentioned a couple of early influences for him were certainly uh, Cassavetes, uh, the work of Andy Warhol. And he was a huge fan of performance, which Bill brought up earlier. And it seems like both Montreal, Maine, even though he didn't direct it, and but certainly the, the, the rubber gun is a confluence of all these different influences and certainly his life in the theater. And I think he even studied acting at one point with um, Nicholas Ray, which kind of makes sense when you think about uh I always, even early on when I first saw Pump of the Volume, I said, well, this feels like our generation's Rebel Without a Cause. So <laughs> that kind of all ties mm-hmm. together. Yeah, I think Jonathan Rosenbaum even evoked uh, Rebel Without a Cause in his review of that. Mm-hmm. And not that we're going to talk about Pump Up the Volume just yet, but when you're talking about the kind of way he works, I remember reading an interview with him where he said he didn't even want necessarily the the best crew people. He wanted the people that he would feel comfortable around that would he be relaxed with that that liked him personally <laughs> that he just uh, wanted the volume yeah i mean he was so burned on times oh, square sure. claiming yeah. that he lost all of his hair from stress that, yeah you know <laughs> it, it makes sense yeah that's what i said too when uh, i directed a feature film impossible horror i'm like oh my beard's all white now it was too stressful <laughs> film <laughs> so my partner's like no what are you talking about <laughs> I, I do want to talk about a rubber gun that like uh, Stephen Lack in the movie is such a oh, fun aircraft. What a force in it, of nature. Which is wild when you consider that he's most well known for his, uh, like, as wooden as you can get performance in David Cronenberg's scanners. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's he's a revelation if you only know him from the Cronenberg appearances. I think he shows up in a bit part in, uh, was it Dead Ringers? Yeah, Dead uh, Ringers. But, yeah, but yeah, no. Yeah, he, I remember all the reviews of, of scanners. I always complain that he's kind of an unappealing lead character. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, he's he's hilarious in uh, in Rubber Gun, and I it, feel he's like playing probably just doing what David Cronenberg asked of him in Scanners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, was he ordinarily a uh, a painter by trade? That was only, or, or was he was was he doing a lot of other acting? I don't know if I looked him up. I mean, as far as like what he was doing in the seventies, was were these his only credits, or was he like a prominent actor then? You know, he's got only like 11 credits and it seems like he was mostly working with that theatrical company. So you got mm. Montreal, Maine, and then you got uh, The Angel and the Woman, which I'm not familiar with, and then The Rubber Gun in 1977 as well. And then he kind of pops up here or there, but clearly this was not his main career path because if it was, oh boy, he probably had some difficulty paying the rent. <laughs> yeah, I know when this opens with him talking through the car loudspeaker, it kind of foreshadows the... Um the the uh, the motormouth DJs of the of the two Hollywood films that's that come what I was thinking after this yeah. but mm-hmm. yeah and also the um I think just the 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 song score gives it a quirkiness too that um I mean the whole thing feels like worlds apart from t- even Times Square but uh, I don't know. still feel like the structure of Times Square being in like its proto phase here and even the way that like the music is almost constant like it's someone talking and then you'll get music right after it like you said giving it that quirky feel but also you can see Alan Moyle kind of discovering the styles that he likes and will then continue to work with as he goes into his Hollywood phase hmm. yeah who did all the music for that was it the was it pretty much Louis like a Fury? I Louis think? Fury okay yeah gosh those songs are so out there at times <laughs> Uh, I, I, I was really taken aback by by some of those songs and just certainly how they're overlapping. And yeah, you know, almost 
it's 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 at times it yeah it feels improvised and and certainly like Altman-esque at times the way people are talking over one another or just just the editing in there is very very jarring and I you know I think again he mentioned Warhol and just like how he would edit films with scissors and not <laughs> necessarily uh, make everything cohesive either uh, but it's very yeah sort of loose and slapdash and. I don't know. It, it really felt a lot to me like the Stephen Lack show, but in a good way, in a very entertaining and mm-hmm. interesting way. Uh, certainly, Alan Moyle is an actor. He's a very interesting presence uh, playing Bozo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting character name for him in both uh, Montreal, Maine and, and, in, and in Rubber Gun. But uh, yeah, he's, he plays, in, play, plays a student at a university who's like doing a thesis paper on drug use and um, just basically sort of starts following st- Steve's family as his subject and sort of like learning about what they do. And, uh, I, if I recall also builds like a locker heist (laughs) late in the game. Um, but no, I mean, it's just, it's so offbeat. It's so different than what I'm used to seeing with an Alan Moyle film. And yet there is this sense of like community and family with, in all these characters that I kind of uh, appreciate whenever that happens in, in a movie. Yeah, and it has that that same trope that you find in everything from real life to deconstructing Harry to Mistress America, as far as like the um, the 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 artist that is using mm. other people's stories for their art, and whether or not that constitutes a kind of exploitation of them. Um, I mean, and I guess the fact that he's making kind of a fake documentary ish kind of film about his social circle, I guess, um, you know, is is kind of maybe acknowledging that i i, I don't at the know. end alan moyle is like i wrote my thesis paper on you guys and i want to be like ah, no one's gonna read that thesis paper alan come on <laughs> i'd read it <laughs> oh sure of course no it does play like a yeah kind of a verite documentary of like the counterculture movement of the time up there and it's such an interesting look at a time and place that we rarely get to see but yeah it's it's just full of strange dialogue i, I almost want somebody to transcribe a lot of this a lot of what Steven says in this movie because <laughs> it's just so out there at times and including like that scene where he's looking at some boys playing hockey at one point. I'm like, Ooh. <laughs> Oh yeah. And what they're talking uh, about. Yep. <laughs> a little uncomfortable. Yep. Well, it's interesting also. Cause I mean, the way that the early films like Montreal, Maine and rubber gun are very kind of like free, like as far as like the, um, the sexuality of those films, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of queer characters and it's, it's just part of that world. And the, the trouble that he gets into with the first Hollywood film, as far as uh, a much more innocent, but still, uh, you know, considered kind of gay uh, text to uh, Times Square. I mean, it's something that they had to kind of hide in the editing just because the studio was uncomfortable with it. And um, he doesn't really address queer themes as openly again in his films. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of like um, the, the high school homophobia is addressed in Pump Up the Volume, but it's they become pretty pretty straight. I mean, after after yeah, Rubber the Gun. Kid who commits suicide and pump up the volume. He was supposed to be gay and the studio oh. told them, don't, we won't let you do it. Mm. And so it's actually not addressed head on in the film. Interesting. Yeah. Well, isn't the, um, the other caller that, um, that, uh, mentions yeah, there is another, of, uh, yeah, gay character yeah. as well, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause I remember the, the, the jocks or whatever, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, I didn't know about that. The suicide. And I guess that was, 
I don't know, Jim, was that based on, I know he told you when you spoke to him about like someone in his town killed himself. I wasn't sure if that was informing yeah, the, uh, that could be that story or not. No, that could yeah, very it well was, be. It, it, it was a guy. He, he talked about it like that. He thought he was like the bravest guy he knew in a small town who mm-hmm. would make like zines and posters and stuff like that and really expressed himself. Right. I don't think, cause I read an interview with him. I don't think if he specifically said if he was gay or not, but mm. it did lead to the the kid committed suicide, which he said had did inspire pump up the volume, at least in its like earliest iterations when it was a little bit different. And it was supposed to be the Christian Slater character getting on the radio and talking about how he's going to commit suicide at some on point. On the air. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, there's one reason for this episode to come out. I, I mean, obviously, everybody knows and I don't even know if I want to do as much talking <laughs> about Pump Up the Volume, only because I've talked about it extensively. Uh, but I want to bring attention to a very special movie. And uh, uh, certainly, I'm grateful for this Blu-ray release for Alan Moyle's film from 1980 that I initially didn't connect with, maybe because I saw it as, again, like almost similar to The Rubber Gun, where I didn't see a good print or a transfer of it. Uh, and I just, I don't know, maybe, maybe it felt again, a little messy, but I also remember reading Roger Ebert's review of Times Square. And he said like, of all the bad movies I've seen recently, this is the one that projects the real sense of a missed opportunity of potential achievement gone wrong. And I guess I don't Roger talking about that. Yeah. I I don't necessarily (laughs) I don't disagree with it having more potential and we can talk about why, you know, we or or why he might think that way. And certainly, I guess to some degree it's justified, but I don't think this movie is bad at all. It's become my second favorite Alan Moyle film for reasons outside of the killer soundtrack. <laughs> so uh, I think at the first Alan Moyle's like, I didn't want that soundtrack. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I just I mean, I when I first saw it, maybe I just didn't focus on its strengths as strongly mm-hmm. or I felt that some of the subplots were were very underdeveloped, including the Tim Curry character. But um, I did note. Certainly that the two lead performances were phenomenal, but on, on a rewatch, it's clear this was like the blueprint for things to come a decade later when it comes to a portrayal of teen angst and anti-authority and finding again that sense of community with like-minded peers who are also struggling. But it's also hard not to feel as I'm watching it a little bit of melancholy knowing, you know, that Moyle felt this film was essentially cut in a way that... Uh, didn't please him in any way. It was taken away from him. There's just that. And there's also a real sense of loss in the fact that Robin Johnson never became a true break breakout star the way she should have when you watch this movie. Anytime she's on screen, she commands your attention. You can't help but be drawn towards her energy. We can just point the finger directly at Robert Stigwood, <laughs> who really uh, messed with this film in a way that... Yeah, like I said, uh, Moyle essentially didn't want to become a part of the industry in any way after that. So, But at the same time, what we have is a very special movie that people need to rediscover if they haven't by now. It's fascinating to hear Moyle say that like the film was like butchered, taken out of his hands, which... I mean, of course, you know, he said it happened, it happened, but it, it feels so similar to Rubber Gun and even mm. Empire Records that like it, it feels like baked in this 
kind of messy like no matter what version he would have probably delivered his director's cut would have been messy because of the structure of the film sure sure that the character's performances and the kind of like grittiness in the environment that they're in is unavoidable no matter how the picture is cut yeah i think um this was this was one that i had to look for for a few years because i think when i was a kid anything with a punk rock connection kind of had a cult following built in because there was just so few films that dealt with punk rock. And I think Mm. even things that were kind of a little bit more Hollywood and a little bit more, you know, commercial in terms of the soundtrack, um, just any, any kind of connection, you know, was sought after. And this was when we couldn't find it in any of the video stores in my town. And so I didn't see it until I probably, Maybe when the DVD was it Anchor Bay? I can't remember. Yep. Came In out like yeah, two thousand one so. or two. Anchor yeah. Bay put it out. Yeah, so I didn't see it for a long time. But um, and I, I don't know if we have talked about the premise of it all. But it's you know you know it's two teenage girls, one who's uh, kind of an emotionally unstable musician, uh, on living on the streets and kind of getting into uh, different kinds of uh, legal troubles, and she. Uh, you know, meets uh, a girl that's kind of from a more sheltered, um, you know, her, she's the daughter of a uh, of a politician, kind of shades of the the Paige Woodward character in um, Pump Up the Volume as far as like the perfect, mm-hmm. uh, you know, daughter who's just kind of bursting at the seams on the inside, played by uh, Trini Alvarado, who um, people might know her from Rich Kids, the, um, the New York uh, Robert Altman produced uh, kids movie, or even... Um, the uh, she's uh, uh, in Satisfaction, the Justin Bateman, Julie Roberts girl band movie from the late eighties. Oh yeah, but um, and the Frighteners, she was uh, love interest. Oh, in the sure. Frighteners. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She had she had a, like, a proper career. I mean, had more more films people might know than Robin Johnson did. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Tim Curry plays the uh, the uh, the DJ that's kind of encouraging their kind of rebellion and almost speaking to them kind of like almost shades of the warriors as far as like they're constantly being addressed by by a radio presence um and you know it also kind of points towards pump up the volume obviously as far as the countercultural voice on the radio kind of urging teen rebellion but um i also thought of things like ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains even the um sure kind of like almost uh skunk like you know eye makeup imagery towards the end and like the army of girls <laughs> that are all kind of uniting to uh, you know around this uh badass young punk girl singer i mean there's there's a lot that kind of feels like a zeitgeist and, and, and honestly both that and ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains didn't find their audience until the dvd era other than just kind of whispers and bootleg tapes and things it's um I'm not sure if it was just the subject matter or if audiences just weren't ready for these kinds of stories in the early eighties, but yeah, they, they, they seem to pick up a lot of their following like a, a decade or even two decades later. Um, I, I, I don't know how many, I, I don't think I ever met any fans of times square when I was growing up, but it, it seems like a natural cult film for, for girls. And I, I, I showed it to somebody, um, last week and she was baffled that it wasn't, um, better known and, she, and her only conclusion was like well you know female centered kind of coming of age you know teen rebellion stories are not you know they're, they're going to have a harder time finding their you know getting treated fairly by the studio system and there can also be um you know people that would be in charge of this kind of distribution they would go uh this is grimy because <laughs> it's yeah. right there in the title Times square and it makes 
no kind of uh, concessions with that, that like the 13 year old character is working as a stripper. She doesn't take her clothes off, but yeah, there's still that like, ugh. and the Tim Curry stuff seems to be, you know, uh, glancing toward Montreal, Maine, even though it never quite gets there, but it feels like it's going to. And it's like, uh-oh. yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. It's funny. I read at least one review from the time, and actually in a Canadian newspaper, that complained that it was Disneyfying Times Square and that they <laughs> wanted it to be even sleazier and more taxi driver. Or I don't know if they wanted it to be driller killer or what they wanted it to be, but they were complaining. I mean, the that- two girls try to rob someone at gunpoint. <laughs> like, what, <laughs> what else are they supposed to do? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I mean, it's funny because like I go to New York all the time and it is like Disney World now. So, I mean, looking mm-hmm. at it, Times Square, it doesn't feel like uh, sugarcoating anything. I mean, I, I guess they're not like assaulted and mugged more, you know, in the film, but it's not like it's portrayed as some kind of, you know, suburbia where everybody is your friend. It's definitely like a dangerous environment, but uh, mm-hmm. but not like but, those shots when they're both walking down the street, just the cameras tracking along with them, and you're seeing every marquee and everybody right there on the street. It does oh. feel real and just like yeah. evident there. And I'm, I'm not sure yeah. what was their process getting those kind of um, that kind of footage. Yeah. Well, also the the fact that the um, the Trini Alvarado character's politician father kind of exaggerates how dangerous and sleazy. Like, mm-hmm. I won't let my daughter go see Cuckoo's Nest, um, you know, <laughs> in, in in Times Square. But it's it, it almost shows his concerns to be a little bit alarmist and unrealistic. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think. I mean, I think that the film is saying that it's not quite as bad as his old dad's making it out to be. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's interesting that a reviewer would think that this movie is Disneyfying Times Square because that's exactly what the dad politician wants to do, you know, to that to that area. And I mean, I, I bet the reviewer just wanted to see it as some kind of like demonic landscape where no human being should <laughs> tread. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, similar I mean, to how our dad thinks of that part of town, but it's just I don't know. And it's funny, like watching you know, the room full of politicians sort of made me think of certainly when all the teachers are gathered together in a boardroom trying to say, what can we do to stop this from happening? You know? Uh, And yeah, there's a lot of blueprints, you know, certainly after we see, um, I, I think uh, Nikki reading Pam's diary in the hospital, there's this long pan of the radio studio that Tim Curry is in. It is very much like the opening shot or at least a shot of, uh, Harry's basement studio in pump mm-hmm. up the volume. There's just like little touches here and there where you kind of go, Oh yeah, this is, you can tell that he's yeah. Veering into similar territory even early on here. And in a way that does feel like, like, like you're saying, Justin kind of lived in and naturalized and not, uh, you know, too stylized in a way, especially that, that scene where, where they're dancing to life during wartime down the street. I, I can't tell you how much I love that moment. You can tell that, like, the movie's been muddled with in some weird ways. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that the Tim Curry character, he seems to be, like, this godlike figure that they kind of, you know, love and want to be part of. And then suddenly the film cuts to them just playing in his studio. And you're like, wait, what? How, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Continuity errors, for sure. There's certain, like, that scene. Like build up just cut out. Yeah, their hair changes at one point completely. Uh, there's, it feels like, yeah, there's just missing scenes and clearly there are like, I'm sure there's, I don't know if 
the footage still exists out there of some of these scenes that were shot, but I don't think oh, it, no. it's I, probably I, all gone. Just yeah, that's that's sad. Like there should be the official director's cut of this movie that Alan Moyle intended it to be. And certainly I know he wanted to utilize Tim Curry more and Tim Curry had more ideas and certainly wanted to add more to the character. But I think they wanted to focus mainly on Nikki and Pamela. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It both, both this one and pump up the volume feel like just almost like a little slightly just ahead of the curve ahead of their time. As far as even this, the music choices, I mean, mm-hmm. as far as, um, I mean, we'll get to pump up the volume, but I mean, you know, this this feels like it's it's speaking to a a popularity in punk and new wave that I mean, these were established bands. I mean, Talking Heads and Pretenders, Patti Smith. I mean, they were famous, but I feel like I don't know. I, they weren't they, they were still kind of hip cult acts in a way. I mean, compared to maybe how we think of them now, I, I, I think that this this almost seems to anticipate a um an era in popular music that maybe didn't quite arrive in the early 80s because i think that by 1980 it's kind of just as as the dawn of mtv and it kind of moves towards either the haircut bands like duran duran or to you know hard rock or even to you know michael jackson madonna and that kind of thing this this feels like kind of kind of caught at the crossroads of like late 70s and thinking that the new wave of these bands was going to be the mainstream. It doesn't really quite pan out that way, but I, it seems like Moyle's cut was compromised partly because they wanted to spotlight so much of the music, maybe thinking that they could have a double a Saturday, night Fe- a Saturday night fever for new wave, the way he oh, had for disco. That makes complete sense. I mean, Stigwood, he was, you know, a real entrepreneur and responsible for a lot of musical productions, but again, had a lot of successful films films like Saturday Night Fever. So it does feel like at times the soundtrack is from two different perspectives, like Stigwood's perspective, especially with the closing song being Help Me, that uh, eh, definitely doesn't fit (laughs) with some of um, Moyle's obvious choices, including using the Ramones the way he does, or something like Patti Smith's Pissing in a River. So I I think those are clearly Moyle's choices. And then Stigwood decided, nah, I'm going to add my own touches to this as well. I think Times Square is also interesting in the sense of looking at the future films about rebellion that um, Alan would make in that, like, how do you reach a climax for these films? Like, what is the final point of rebellion? And oftentimes it is not necessarily about the characters themselves reaching some kind of, you know, nirvana or understanding, but just spreading the message. And I don't know if the cut of the film makes that clear until right the final moments. Where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, okay, so I guess they're really popular in New York. Like, everybody knows them? Well, it's interesting because all three of them end with, like, the yeah. main characters kind of speaking to the masses in their respective mm-hmm. towns. I mean, you know, Pump of the Volume and Empire Records also have kind of similar endings. And, um, you know, but, yeah, it, it is kind of – it's funny because – Times Square is also the same year as Fade to Black, which has an ending kind of like Times Square as far as like the... Uh, well, it, I mean, in Fade to Black, the crazy movie fan who is killing people that have wronged him does not go, <laughs> do this like me, <laughs> dress yeah. like your favorite characters and murder the ones that have wronged you. But wouldn't that be inspiring, though, if they had done yeah. that? <laughs> That's why um, they put it out of circulation for so long. They didn't want yeah. all these copycat killers. Yeah, but yeah, I know yeah. what you mean, like that it ends like on the marquee and all that stuff, like speaking to a giant crowd. 
Yeah, and both feel like punk adjacent in different ways, um, but on different coasts. Um, but yeah, no, I think um, yeah, I'm I'm glad that Times Square is getting a uh, another chance with the new Blu-ray that came out to to find an audience that kind of appreciates it. Because I, I mean, I I I when I hear Alan Moyle talk about it, it sounds like still such a painful yeah experience for him but i think that the film works i mean even with all of the compromises and all the weird choppy edits i think it's still really entertaining and i I think part of it is just the same thing that you can say about pump up the volume and um empire records as well is that like he's got a good knack for casting these when he has you know the budgets to make things that feel kind of uh professional and i I think that like he he gets by on the charisma of of the actors a lot of times too Oh gosh. I mean, Robin Johnson sounding like a 45-year-old uh who smoked every day of her life. <laughs> like, you can't edit around that. It's just so endearing and charismatic. Especially that her character is like so complicated in that you keep being introduced to new things that are like, "Oh, okay. I what?" Like the fact that at one point they point out that like she if she gets taken in again, she'll be a book for manslaughter because she <laughs> threw her friend who was ODing like into the river. Oh, yeah, that's that's a painful moment of her sharing her past. But also just because I'm you know passionate about mental health portrayals, I found this to be a very interesting portrayal of just that time. And I think um, the original title of the script was She Got the Shakes and these two teen girls meet while sharing a room in a neuropsychiatric hospital where they're being examined for mental illness when clearly they're, they're just of a certain age where, yeah, those, those feelings and emotions and all sorts of things are out of control. And in a way that, uh, I mean, I don't know, people pathologize things certainly to, to a degree that's often troubling, but for them to, you know, be committed essentially was just like, mm-hmm. really? I mean, just because you're acting out or, you know, have anxiety or certainly in the case of Pam is struggling with depression after losing her mother. That's the solution. And I mean, I was all for breaking them out of there, <laughs> you know, cause that's not where they belong. They sort of belong building their own connection together. And when you see that happens, you, you get it, you understand it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, the friendship is so real between them. It's there's so much chemistry that it does feel like you're watching an actual friendship unfold right before your eyes. So and, and God, Robin Johnson singing that damn dog song and she just keeps going. I'm just like, <laughs> I would be a, I would be applauding if I saw that myself. I mean, it's just a, a, a transcendent moment. And certainly when they're singing that song in Tim Curry's studio, I just, uh, I think I think Alan Moyle is one of the all-time great filmmakers that just knows how to capture that punk energy in in a movie or any and just like knowing cuz we praise all the time people like Paul Thomas Anderson Quentin Tarantino for using great music in movies but I I think Alan Moyle is just phenomenal especially with these two films that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he captures like the feeling of youth through the music. Oh, for sure. Which is not something I would associate with like Wes Anderson, which is like, "Ah, oh, I love these songs. They fit the moment perfectly." But in Alan Moyle's like trilogy of music films, mm-hmm. there's a kind of just in your face immediacy with every track that is played in the movies. I mean, good or bad when you're talking about something like Empire Records. Yeah. That was the moment. Oh, no, for sure. And, and and that sequence scored with that Patti Smith song is very affecting. And it brought to mind a, a movie I think you're familiar with, Bill, All Over Me 
from the, the late 90s because oh, yeah, yeah. it uses yeah. the same song at one point. So I wonder if they were influenced. And you could see the influence possibly on uh, from this film on that film. Oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's... I think... I mean... I think if you compare him to Wes Anderson, I think Wes Anderson is is picking music that comes from his record collection. I think Alan Moyle, I don't see this in a bad way, but I think he's really trying to make the ultimate film for whoever the 15 year old mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. audience member is at the time that he's making this movie. Like he's somebody, you know, I mean, we're talking about him like an auteur. And I think you can make an argument for the, the teen films that, uh, especially the ones that he's the writer on. But yeah. I think that, he is definitely somebody that comfortably moves into a journeyman kind of phase after maybe one too many disappointments as as a writer director and oh, um, absolutely. But can't we just let him have these four films? Bill? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I but I, and I would say that like a lot of directors, you know, Soderbergh, even you know, Spike Lee. I mean, a, a lot of directors become kind of more comfortable just working with outside material and trying to do the best they can with it, and and. You know, their style kind of adapt, you know, keeps up with the times. I mean, if if you look at the films that come after New Waterford Girl, I mean, you you see someone that is always kind of working with, you know, certain genres and trying to do his best to, you know, make something that feels kind of like American Pie or make something that feels kind of like Fatal Attraction or make something that feels kind of like. Um, almost kind of like a like a Fincher meets Stoner comedy with Weirdsville. Like he's always trying to. Uh, adopt a, a style that feels appropriate to the to the outside material, but I think these early films um, they invariably feel more personal because he's a writer on them. I think, and they, yeah, they kind of yeah, tied, after yeah. Times Square that he would never make anything that he didn't write until he's like, oh boy, I got to do something somebody else wrote if I want to get this gig, and he avoids the like, how do you do, fellow kids, feeling which <laughs> feel would have been very easy if he like hit the wrong notes, but. Like we keep saying, the music is so immediate and, you know, even watching it now, it's like, oh, it's capturing the moment so particularly that I, I would love to know, like, what he was tuned into because he was not a young man when he was making stuff like even Times Square, especially pump up the volume. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Empire Records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, even something like Jailbait, which is not like one of his great films, but I mean, it's something that is aiming at the MTV teen audience. Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it was an MTV th- movie, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an MTV movie, you know, 2000. I mean, it's 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 got like a parody of a Britney Spears video in it. Like it's speaking to that oh moment in popular culture. And it doesn't feel yeah, it doesn't feel too self-conscious about it, too. It feels like this is the kind of movie that you would see on on TV at that time. Maybe he just reached an age and he went, all right, that's it. Not tuned in anymore. <laughs> Got to become more of a journeyman kind of guy. Well, I think, I mean, has he ever had a hit? I mean, no. no. And he said that basically, I mean, in that classic filmmaker way that all of his films have been kind of failures in his eye. Like I saw an interview where uh, he started saying that pump up the volume was an abortion. He backed off a little bit on that. But like, I don't even think he's happy with the end result. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I get that impression a little bit from him. You know, I think certainly the title is something that he didn't want changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was originally Talk Hard. So but. I think that a lot of, you know, the interviews I've read with him, he says that he he views himself as a weirder filmmaker and that he, he hasn't been able to express himself 
in the kind of films that he uh, he's done in that weird way. Hmm. And I'm curious, like, if you just let him loose, what you would get. You know what? You'd probably get Weirdsville. <laughs> That's what you would get. <laughs> did he? I don't think he wrote Weirdsville, though, right? No, he, he did not. Yeah. yeah. I, mm. Yeah. Well, we we can sort of transition, but I mean. So with his experience and unfortunate uh, cutting of, of Times Square, and it certainly didn't strike a chord at the time, and even critics weren't very kind to it, Alan Moyle just said, fuck it, I'm moving to Greece, <laughs> and I'm going to work on a novel. So, And that novel wasn't necessarily ever completed, but taking a decade off from film and film production might have been a good thing, because he came back revitalized and with a script. Yes, like I mentioned, he wanted to call Talk Hard, but of course, New Line Cinema was like, hmm, what about Pump Up the Volume instead? Uh-oh, don't make me agree with executives, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was a hit talk song. Talk Radio come out? Talk Radio. 87? Oh, yeah. Okay. It would have been very close, that's for sure, and certainly some reviews at the time would compare Pump Up the Volume to Talk Radio, and I can understand why, of course. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes the thing is with, with this next film, which in August of 1990 and didn't do well despite positive reviews, I I don't need to do a whole lot of talking at this time <laughs> because I've, um, and Justin may not be aware, but I've talked many times on this podcast about how this film changed not only changed my life, but it saved my life. Um, I, I had the pleasure of telling Alan Moyle that in an interview and I, you know, I don't want to make it indulgent or make it all about me, me, me and sound like a broken record again. You know, I, I want to hear about how this film has impacted my guests more than anything, uh, because I can also point people to these other episodes I've done. And certainly I've even put out an episode dedicated to just what how how much this movie means to me and how emotional it makes me when I talk about it, uh, because, like I said, Certainly at that time, um, when I saw this movie, I had recently tried to take my own life. And then I sat down with my mom, of all people, <laughs> to watch this movie uh, on opening weekend. Because that was, you know, something we did to, to you know, um, to kill time is we'd go to the movies together and see just about anything. And when I heard this movie reviewed on WGN Radio with a film critic named Nick DiGilio, um, and he compared it to Rebel Without a Cause. I went to see it, and I decided that um, I'm going to fight through my depression and figure out what to do about it, because uh, I, I'm no longer alone. I don't. I, I identify so much with Hard Harry in, in ways that very few movies have done for me. Uh, so I think a lot of people know that by now. And I don't want to go on and on. I just did. So... <laughs> Let's, I want to hear from my guests more than anything about what they think um, about Pump Up the Volume. I want to hear, Bill, so what yeah, age yeah. were you when this movie came out? Or like, when did you see it? I saw it in high school. Uh, I saw it at a friend's house on cable. Mm. Um, 
I saw it at the right age. I mean, it was, you know, just as alternative music was starting to kind of appear on my radar. I was like a heavy metal kid, you know, like as a preteen. And so I was getting into kind of a wider variety of things. And um, certainly like bands like The Descendants came up on my radar through Pump Up the Volume. Um, maybe not the Pixies, but some of the other, Leonard Cohen, I don't think I really knew before seeing no, Pump Up the Volume. Um, I think at the time, I, you know, the teen movies I had seen were like either John Hughes type things or say anything was like the year before. So John Cusack movies. And this is before, um, since you mentioned Kevin Smith, this is before things like clerks that are aimed at a young audience, but like really filthy in terms mm-hmm. of the uh, profanity that I knew actual peers of mine talked like sailors you know like we we cursed oh, yeah. a lot and so i remember <laughs> i know what, some friends of friends that they may drop a few dirty words now and then mm-hmm. yeah well but like so that was the thing that i think first stood out to me when i saw pump of the volume was was just the directness of the dialogue was mm-hmm. something that i don't think you really found in other teen movies of that period and i think that coupled with a lot of interesting music that i wasn't familiar with um, and the fact that it, it, it kind of jumped in with both feet in terms of the, um, really exploring teen angst in a way that like Anthony Michael Hall's breakfast club monologue or whatever is doesn't quite get to the same degree of realism. Although, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, that certainly worked more than it does to me, uh, as an adult, but I think, I, I think I might've also seen river's edge by that point. And so I was also kind of taken with the, um, that kind of Gen X tension with baby boomers was something I was starting to be aware of around that time. And like mm. the pushback against, you know, uh, the, just hi- the, the hippie sm- culture and yeah. But that kind of smug, like our generation had the Beatles, your generation has whatever garbage you have on MTV, like that kind of condescension that I think is guitar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like it was just, but it was like that kind of, slightly snotty kind of thing that you know like no our generation has also got its own strengths kind of thing that i think you know as as a as i you know 14 or 15 years old like this is like totally speaking to me um and i don't think i'd even seen like that many indie films at that age so i would not have been aware of like this is something I noticed just rewatching it for this episode, but just the the connection to Sex, Lies, and Videotape as far as like it's another Cliff Martinez score. It's another Walt Lloyd shot film. Yep. And like that was the game changer of the year before an independent film. So it's it's got these kind of like loose, you know, like, you know, these, these contributors to what was then like the indie film of the, of the period. So I think it was kind of, again, it just felt like a little too ahead of its time as far as like it's just before uh the Miramax Tarantino era really kind of makes this a thing it's before Kurt Cobain and Seattle and just the popularizing of anything alternative it's all just right a little bit too you know ahead of the curve but you know on video and cable like this becomes like a major cult movie and granted cult movies don't help the director like maintain a career necessarily <laughs> you know because you know the, the things are measured in in box office theatrical box office but i think um yeah it was like a, a it was a really important film to me as as a high school student and i i think that 
you know, a lot of teen movies that I grew up with then maybe not have not always aged so well, but this one still kind of like it pairs favorably with things like River's Edge or even Over the Edge. I mean, and actually mm. Over the Edge was something I I found later. I was looking for it, but um, it took me a while to find a copy uh, back, you know, because I, I it was on my radar because of Danny Perry writing about it. But uh, just that same idea of like like an isolated town out west where all the houses look the same and everyone's kind of stifled in a school that kind of suppresses their rebellious urges until they just start trashing things, <laughs> you know, like it, destroying schools, just like being like a, uh, you know, a menace, but not in a, um, and maybe this is the kind of thing that you wouldn't see in films so much in a post Columbine world, but just like, you know, teenagers that are just so angry at their, at their environment that they're, they're getting a little violent or they're getting a little, uh, dangerous, um, yeah, but not against not, public not, property, you know, it's yeah. Not yeah. Not killing people, but, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just I mean, carrying Walt, like large, yeah, just large boners and throw you know, thrust them against things, you know, like where that did they kinda. get that giant penis? Like, I wonder about that too. <laughs> it's one of the yeah, one of the great mysteries of Pump Up the Volume. I don't know if there was a scene that ever clarified that, or if it's just the hard, hairy, you know, symbol. But uh, yeah, no, I'm curious, Justin, because you you didn't you know you grew up in that era. Like, what was your first impression of Pump Up the Volume? So I must have seen Pump Up the Volume in its entirety only five, maybe ten years ago. But it played endlessly on TBS um, mm. when I was a kid. And so I lived in a – not even like a suburban track small town. I lived in a farming town. So it was even – you know, I looked at Pump Up the Volume and I was like, boy, I wish there were that many kids that went to my school. <laughs> Um, well, I just want to, before I forget, and we, you know, Walt Lloyd shot up a shot, pump up the volume and which, you know, came from sex lies and videotape. And he also was a cinematographer on two Albert Pune films down twisted and dangerously cr- close. So, uh, oh let's trace, wow. you know, the indie boom to, of course, Albert Pune. <laughs> I knew but, you could make the connection, <laughs> but back to, uh, pump up the volume. Yeah. So I saw it in like bits and pieces, like here or there. And what's interesting is that. I did not connect with, uh, you know, the kind of like dirtiness of the way kids actually talk because that was censored on all the cable viewings that I watched. And I didn't even really clock into the kind of depression and the universal universal feeling of that, probably because I only saw it in like bits and pieces, even though that like I knew the whole story, like I knew a kid committed suicide on air. And I knew that he continued to do his radio show. But I vividly remember responding to the basic idea of someone having a pirate radio station. Not that I specifically wanted to do that, but the idea that you could go and individually or with friends do something that you would assume is only the domain of big, ununderstandable organizations. Like, I vividly remember, like, the FCC kind of, like, hunting him down, triangulating his signal and being like, wow, you can just go out there and do that and express yourself in a way and, you know, just talk about whatever you wanted, never really connecting to, you know, you know the narcissistic tendencies or something like that, even though he is expressing a universal uh, feeling that would not be heard on any kind of radio broadcast and wondering at the time being like, Oh, okay. So I can go out and do those things. Not specifically, you know, radio, but like movies or books or like all these ideas of these DIY things. And you can get it out to people that, you know, are reflective of your own qualities that you don't always see represented in the world. When you just look around you or look at pop culture entertainment and wondering 
will there be some way that I could talk into a microphone and get to dozens of people out there who listen to my thoughts? <laughs> I have no Never idea what you're talking about. That, oh, the podcast could exist. Yeah, it's it's also, I mean, this reminds me so much, I mean, you know, not to sound like an old man, but like, you know, the way counterculture disseminated like in a pre-internet age, like a pre-cell phone age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, zines and radio and just word of mouth. I mean, mm -hmm. telephone calls. I mean, it just, I don't know, it's such a more innocent time, but. Uh, yeah, I know. I felt, I felt a <laughs> oh, little no, sad. Am I there? Do you still exist? I still see them. I still make them every now and then. It, it's yeah. still out there. Yeah. yeah no, I, I just went to a store with a whole zine room in New York. Oh, so, yeah, no, this, it. it's seem, seemingly like a very big culture. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. No, I mean, I just I think watching this, you know, now it, it, just the idea of discovering music through whether it's MTV or, yeah, like a alternative radio station or something like just nowadays you just go to Spotify. Oh, everything is there. And here's recommendations. Here's a playlist or here's a music blog with like 10 records you can listen to right now or something. But just the, the, the way that these kids discover these teenagers discover this music too. It's it, yeah. It, it, it brought to mind like, Oh yeah, I kind of missed the pre-internet era in a way, not to like wax nostalgia or just yeah. Like you said, Bill sound like the old man or something, but that, that's just the feeling I get now sometimes watching this movie, too, is just like, oh, yeah, that was a really interesting time to where I could make mixtapes and, you know, expose people to certain things that they never would have heard of or something like that, too. But yeah. one, one other thing I thought of is this is like this is something I thought about watching it again this week was how um, 1990, this is still kind of like the PMRC era. Like it's a, it's a little bit after, you know, Tipper Gore and mm. the... Um, you know, the PMRC went after like heavy metal groups, but it's right around the time that you have two live crew getting busted for obscenity and body before count. you have, was it C. Dolores Tucker? Like you have like, you have activists like, you know, going against like Tupac in a couple of years after that. But it's like um, that last era of like, at least like my generation's like popular music being like kind of like at war over ly lyrical content with like baby sure. boomer politicians. And I feel like, to some extent, the the principle I know that it's kind of rooted on like in a real life uh, situation that Moyle talked about in the interviews with like a school that was maybe using shady methods to you know uh, get rid of students that were kind of lowering its overall uh, you know excellence academically. Uh, but like the, I just can only think of Tipper Gore and like the the kind of parents' generation voices that are like trying to stifle the. Uh, the rude or offensive or, uh, you know, socially, you know, impolite kind of pop music that was, uh, uh, you know, something that kids loved and that, uh, you know, was considered a problem. And I, I, at a certain point, I think it just became impossible to regulate it, like in the Internet age. And I, I've never really heard about like, uh, you know, people getting up in arms over like lyrical content the same way, like in a way that tried to ban it or just make it harder for kids to access. But then mm -hmm. it was like something that I really thought about. I mean, I had tapes taken away from me because of the stickers on them mm -hmm. uh, in my household because I sure. kind of had a conservative household, you know. But um, yeah, this is something I don't know that that no, necessarily my blood translates. Gang tape, please <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let me keep it. 
<laughs> yeah well i remember like even like that year like a ministry album came out and the parental advisor sticker had like a dotted line around it because they wanted you to cut it out and mail it to somebody to like you know complain like you ca- it came with like two different booklets inside so that you wouldn't have a fucked up cd oh, <laughs> but you could so like good. also it was just like yeah they made a point out of like I mean, you know, I know that Lenny Bruce was like an influence on the hard Harry character and like just that notion of like controversial uh, entertainment, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I I just don't know. I mean, I guess controversial entertainment is still a thing now, but it's a different it's a different thing when you're of the age of the censors, (laughs) you know, but um, then it was is something where it's like, oh, you know, the baby boomers don't get our music, man. You know, and like well, this it was felt like going from, you know, like the satanic panic of the 80s with all the hair metal bands and like you sure, shouldn't be sure. listening to that to the more direct, like you said, oh, this is filthy. Let's how you this. how What will it do to your mind if you listen to it? Literally nothing. Yeah, yeah no, my, my parents, happen. my parents were mortified that I owned an iced tea CD. You know, and yeah. and when Ice T comes up in this movie, I don't think my mom was very happy. Like she she watched this movie with me, and I just remember her going, "Oh," when we walked out, he's like, I, "I guess it was okay, but why did he have to simulate masturbating? That was really uh, uncomfortable." And is your mom now like, "I watch Ice T every week on Law and Order Special <laughs> Victims Unit"? Yeah, now she's a huge Ice T fan, owns all his records. <laughs> she uh, won't stop talking about Ice T. Yeah, right. No, it's just. Yeah, it's a very different time. It's interesting, too, to think like, yeah, Pump Up the Volume changed my life. And then, of course, I discovered Nirvana and then eventually Pulp Fiction. But it's there's an interesting tie to where I wonder if uh, Kurt Cobain had had seen Pump Up the Volume because at one point on the record, never mind, there's a song called Territorial Pissings. And it opens with, I think it's Chris Novoselic screaming at the top of his lungs, come on! everybody now get together try to love your brother right now that song from the 60s yeah, yeah, yeah. like they, they that's how, that's kind of how they start the song and that's what happened <laughs> christian slater's hard harry in pump of the volume kind of makes fun of that idea and that ideal you know certainly like my yeah. parents sold out you know they used to be cool but now they sold out yeah, you're talking about the Young Blood song come to yes, yeah, yeah, yes. I, and and there was like yeah, there was like a, a a TV commercial for Freedom Rock that was like ever present on t- TV around that time too. So it was yeah, just and the Wonder Years was on TV too. Just like all the stuff that was kind of reinforcing the idea that like weren't things better in the '60s when music was great and you had the like all these great mm-hmm. bands that played their own instruments and it's not like now. <laughs> no, but um, it's, it's not. Yeah, but we, Rivers Edge does that same kind of thing too. With like it has a teacher that kind of represents that kind of like we stopped the war man you know that kind of slightly condescending uh you know baby boomer representative i mean in this one it's like obsessed with this idea of selling out which is something empire records also gets into just this notion of um the horror of compromise values um which, yeah, like Christian Slater's dad now has to work within a system that they keep talking about. They never wanted any part of when they were teenagers to the point that they wanted to take it down. But they're like, yeah, you know, you can't rock the boat that you're standing in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I always find it funny, too, that the parents don't realize that he's hard hairy. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I mean, they they figure it out and then they yeah. drop it instantly once they see that their son is getting laid. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, Gosh, can we talk about Samantha Mathis for a minute? Because, wow. that that I mean, one of the best characters of the 90s, as far as I'm concerned. And maybe it's, again, I'm a little biased because that's definitely the type of uh, 
teenager that I was interested in in high school. <laughs> Just that I'm curious, size. Jim. Once you saw the movie, did you try to go down any pathway of like I want to express myself in this way? Well, yeah, mm. I'd I'd say certainly with music first. You know, mm. picking up a guitar, making my own music in my parents' basement <laughs> was kind of a reflection of that. But it, it, yeah, I. I Movies and music really just sort of tied together for me in the same way that it does in this movie. It's it's it is interesting how when I go back and watch this and sort of see like, oh yeah, this kind of informed what I became. Mm-hmm. And certainly we could talk about the fact that we're all talking in front of microphones right now. And uh, you know, this this movie sort of predicts the the generation of podcasters. You know, you never well, you, the solo podcaster, which I will have <laughs> no part of. Well, yeah, I know. I've gotten used to monologuing, and it's funny because um, I asked uh, one of the, the the podcasters from Pure Cinema Podcast, uh, Brian Sauer and Elric Kane, if there was a movie that they felt reflected them the most in terms of personality. And both Brian Sauer and I <laughs> expressed like, "Oh yeah, we like monologuing sometimes in front of microphones because." a movie that had a huge impact on us was pump up the volume. So yeah, it's, it's interesting going back and seeing like, well, you can recognize certain dated elements uh, and maybe even critiquing certain things that don't hold up or don't work as strongly. But for me, it's, it's a special film in so many ways that it's hard, very hard for me to be objective and say, well, I don't know if this scene works or I don't know if this works, but I, for me, everything works about it. So (laughs) I was going to say, when you mentioned Samantha Mathis, I mean, and, and I, I went on from this to date someone that wore those kind of stripy tights for a couple of years. So I, I had oh, my sure. own oh, kind sure. of impact, you know. But Wait, did like, you start uh, wearing stripy tights as well, Bill? Um, not yet, but. Okay, not yet? <laughs> Still in your future? <laughs> it's, it's, it's working up to it. Um, no, what I was going to say is like, you, you look at the career of, of, of Alan Moyle in so many films, um Surprising number, maybe, uh, center on female protagonists. I mean, everything sure. from Times Square to you know, things like Gun and Betty Lou's Handbag to, you know, things like New Water for Girl. Um, you know, that this is definitely like, you know, a teenage boy movie. And, it, and, and you know, one that like like a lot of these kind of movies, they, they feature what feels like maybe like the idealized romantic, uh, you know, counterpart for, you know, their teenage boy protagonist. And I think of like so many you know, kind of characters that, you know, John Hughes wrote for Molly Ringwald or the kind of characters that maybe someone like Winona Ryder played for Tim Burton or even Adrian Shelley for Hal Hartley, you know, like who would be the kind of girl that I would, you know, have as my girlfriend if I was the, you know, young star of, of, a, of a story. Like they, they, they feel like slightly idealized kind of characters, you know, in a way, but not not unrealistic. I mean, they, they just feel like, you know, a romantic vision of what like a cool teenage girl would be aimed at like, you know, like I said, like the 15 year old boys in the audience. I mean, that's, you know, she's kind of like the proto goth, um, you know, uh, protect. And there wasn't like a really, you know, I mean, she's, she's kind of like if the Ali Sheedy character in breakfast club got to be the heroine and not like have to have a makeover. <laughs> yeah. Samantha Mathis is so proactive and pump up the volume mm-hmm. and it does fall into those, um, like you said, those tropes because, you know, every guy that's 14 or 15 watching this is like, oh, boy, I, I would love if a girl like Samantha Masters came after me. You wouldn't take no for an answer. <laughs> wow. She knows know exactly, exactly how I sounded wants. like. <laughs> and she yeah. basically is constantly pushing Christian Slater 
until the end when he finally makes a decision and asks for her help. But up until then, she is the one that is constantly hounding him. She knows what she wants and she goes for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, she's definitely the assertive one of the two mm-hmm. of them. I mean, she's the eat me, beat me lady. <laughs> yeah, Oh, exactly. yeah. Well, it's it's something I understand, like, the uh, the sort of introverted personality is actually drawn more towards the extrovert because we want to break out of our shy little shell, you know? But I, I also don't think she falls into that unfortunate manic pixie dream girl trope that would eventually infuse something like Garden State, which... To me, certainly when I first saw Garden State, I was like, oh, it was, I guess, fine. I didn't really find it offensive or bad, but I go back to that and go, no. that's <laughs> Now that's I mean, not a movie that holds up. You could make is that in Garden State, kind of the Nicole Kidman character only works in functions of what she can do for Zach Braff, like to help him by, mm-hmm. you know, being herself. While uh, Samantha Mathis, yeah, she just wants to have sex with Christian Slater because she thinks he's cool. Sure. <laughs> like, and she's going for that. Oh, which yeah. Which is not always the case. When I think of the worst, you know, Manic Pixie Dream Girl in all those Cameron Crowe films, like um, uh, Elizabeth Town. Yeah, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Uh, sorry, I Ugh. tried to wipe that name from my memory, but there it is. It's oh. back. Where, yeah. like, uh, Kirsten Dunst does not exist other than what she can do for Orlando Bloom in that film, which is not the case in Pump Up the Volume, even though. Like we mentioned, she, you know, Samantha Mathis is a idealized version of, you know, oh, man, uh, it would be awesome if a girl like that would like me. Yeah, I think the difference is, is that like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl films of the of the early aughts. And I'm thinking of like everything from Lonesome Jim to even Eternal Sunshine, you know, the spotless mind. I mean, those are very sad kind of guys mm-hmm. and i think that like the thing with pump up the volume is like there's a little bit of sadness but that character is mostly just angry it's like a different mm-hmm. energy um and i think it's i don't know i mean it just doesn't feel like like i mean she just feels a little bit more like a real person i mean even if she is idealized it's not like it's not like just some kind of like yeah s- problem to solve or, or something like that all these all these teenagers feel like exactly like my high school experience or the people that i would come across and everybody feels real and genuine in ways that I'm very surprised by. And when we get to empire records, I'm kind of surprised at how un- <laughs> unrealistic a lot of those characters seem to me. But here I just, I mean, even somebody like who has just like a couple of scenes, you know, the character of Malcolm just makes a really strong impression. Like just, it does feel like Alan Moyle knows these teenagers even if he was very much not a teenager at that time and again it doesn't feel like he's pandering or like yeah just not necessarily knowing how to talk like what teen you know because that that whole thing kind of plagued something like Dawson's Creek at the time was like oh these don't sound like real teenagers or whatever it was very stylized and here it's not it's these 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 are conversations I might have even had with some of my friends you know talking about just how disillusioned we are with everything or whatever you know um but no it's 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 an important film for its generation I would say and um, every time I go back to it, I still feel a lot of emotion in, in ways that uh, make me feel very grateful that this film exists and people are still discovering it to this day. I, I, I do wish the Blu-ray that did come out had a lot more features to it, including a Warner commentary. Archive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn you. 
No, but it's, yeah, everybody knows how I feel about this movie. I mean, even Christian Slater says it's like one of his favorite films he's ever acted in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, well, Christian, Christian Slater is funny because like all of his key films were box office flops in their day because Heather's was kind of like a... I I feel like it didn't. I, I I I my memory of it is that that film found its audience on video. I would um, think you're right. Yeah, and that yeah, True Romance from 2004. True Romance found its audience on video, and was it Gleaming the Cube? Well, I don't know if Gleaming the Cube is one of his major films. Like that's one of the first things I remember hearing about with him. But mm-hmm. yeah, like some, Pump Up the Volume, like all of his like early films that I associate with him um, are all like video store and cable favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't know, I feel like he's still underrated because of the Jack Nicholson thing that like he was doing in Heather's. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like that never really kind of left him for like a certain audience. He still did get to, you know, some hits where he was more kind of like slotted in as the handsome leading man, like Broken Arrow in 1996, the John Woo film. Like that was a yeah. pretty big hit. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying he, I, I, he definitely had some successful. Yeah. Movies, but like his theatrical. big films were not. Yeah, uh, I feel like yeah, his cult, his, like the cult surrounding him, at least for Gen X audiences, maybe like I, you know, just speaking for myself, I feel like a lot of them were not, were, were, were kind of not even as big as Johnny Depp's early films, as far as like finding mm-hmm. a, a big audience. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I'm looking at his filmography now, and I'm getting kind of sad. Alone in the Dark, Hollow Man Two. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess he kind of had just like I wouldn't say a resurgence, but certainly people. I don't know if he was nominated for Mr. Robot, but I, I, oh, yeah, that's I, right. I think even the creator of that show cited Pump Up the Volume as being a little bit of an influence. Mm-hmm. He shows up in those Nymphomaniac movies for Von Trier. Like he shows up in things that like. I mean, are not just straight to cable, like, you know, or straight to video kind of things. But yeah, no, I, I still feel like he kind of, I don't know, he didn't have quite as big a career as you might have expected, like if you were following his early career, like, you know, in the in the early 90s. Um, even something like True Romance, I think, was like slated to be a bigger, I mean, look at the cast of it. Like, they, they, you know, they everyone expected that to be a huge movie. And I just because, again, just like slightly ahead of the, like ahead of the curve a little bit. Um, in terms of like what audiences were ready for. So I'm not going to come at this next film with claws out or anything. They all said she's just another groupie slut. And I said I thought you were anything but again, sometimes reputations outlive their applications. Sometimes fires don't go out when you're done you know teenage- you're gonna come at it slowly <laughs> yeah i don't want to scare it i don't, don't want to scare <laughs> the audience away either because i don't know some people really love empire records now is your negative reaction towards this film tied to when it was released or when it started to get a cult following well when you saw it what's interesting is that i saw this at a time as a young adult who was in high school and kind of loved going to the local record store and Mm -hmm. i walked into this movie knowing who directed it (laughs) 
So my expectations were probably way too high because I'm going into mm. this thinking record store, pump up the volume director. Okay. Instead of a pirate radio station, it's, it's going to be in a record store and it's going to be, it's going to have all the dialogue that I love and just, you know, a similar vibe. And I'll give it this. It does have energy, but it's just not in a way that ever spoke to me, that ever grabbed me. And I thought everything about it, like every, like when characters speak, I'm, I'm, I just find it forced. And like, this is, it's almost like the criticism that, um, the former co-host of the show had about Cameron Crowe is that like everything sounds like it's trying to be quotable, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially coming out of Rory Cochran's mouth. I'm just like, Ugh, I roll with that. Uh, but th- at the same time, there is a huge cult following behind this movie who don't roll their eyes at a lot of this movie. And unfortunately I just never clicked with it in a way that's still surprising to me, even watching it now. Everyone who loves this movie is now yelling at their uh, podcast sure, player. Sure, sure. Like, no, and they can't get it, old man. No, yeah, yeah. No, I totally would respect that opinion 100%. You know, I mean, to me, it just feels like this kind of hip, polished updating of something. Like, oh, well, it was just like a year later that this came out after Clerks, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't is know. It, is it the same year as Mallrats? Am I getting the years right? I is think it, you're right. Are they both 95? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm looking it up real fast now. Yep, 1995, Mallrats as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because this is one that I missed when it came out, and then I think I saw it. I I wound up moving to the town where they shot it because it's shot in Wilmington, North Carolina, and so it's actually shot like a block away from where my video store was downtown. So did they have I like think, signs like "This is where Empire Records shot"? You're like, whoa! I <laughs> I you know, unfortunately, it was one of those films that kind of cheated the locations a little bit. So like the exterior was one place and then the interior was a place that was no longer standing by the time or it was or it was retrofitted. Like it wasn't like there was a record store that you could go into like, oh, remember when they shot that, you know, that uh, teen record store movie here? Like it wasn't like you could visit the locations as easily as even things like Blue Velvet, which were like a decade earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, like it just you know, it's just one of those situations where like a lot of the locations kind of, you know, were only temporarily, you know, like looking like that, but you could still walk downtown and it still looks like, I mean, you mentioned Dawson's Creek. It's also the, you know, the same town as Dawson's Creek. Um, but I think, I think when I saw it the first time, I thought that it felt like an approximation of the Kevin Smith movie a little bit, but with all of the, the rough edges sanded off. Like it wasn't going to ever be as clumsy as Kevin Smith, but it would also never also feel like an artist made it either. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like a lot more um, like a, like a, like a commercial approximation of what they, of, of, of like the teen slacker movie of reality bites and clerks and things like that. Like, it, like that, that era of like Gen X. I, I don't even know if that's, I guess that is a Gen X movie, but like, oh, yeah, um, absolutely. 1995. Yeah. Yeah, but the characters feel like younger to me than like, but I guess they're not. I mean, it, it's only a couple of years difference, but I mean, compared to the characters of um, Clerks, they feel younger to me. But uh, I think because a lot of them are in high school because they're talking about like going to college and university and Yale and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So it is that same Clerks like, what am I supposed to do with my life kind of feeling that they're all in yeah. and like, what is the next step? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean. I, I think I remember in an early episode of Directors Club hearing uh, 
Jim, you and you and Patrick complaining about like this being like an ever present cult movie. And I don't think I even was aware of it as a big cult movie until I heard that episode because I, I knew it like had some fans in our like it would rent. We had like a uh, a made in Wilmington section in our video store. And I remember it would occasionally be checked out. But I knew that at the time it was like considered kind of a box office flop. Oh, yeah. And I and I didn't really know any fans of it until like much later. And it was younger. It was like people that were 10 years younger than me that were like the first fans I met of Empire Records. That well, was that's like, yeah, that's very true. in the fact that like the, these DIY musicians we me and Patrick were hanging out with at the time. Yeah, most of them were actually 10 years younger than me. And they would quote this movie and they sort of held it in the same high esteem as the way I did with pump up the volume. So it's not like this generational gap of some kind, but also I just found a lot of it to be forced. I didn't necessarily get the same naturalistic vibes that I got from pump up the volume in this. And, you know, I just, I kind of felt bad (laughs) in a way. It was like, I, I, this is something I should click with. And certainly something like high fidelity was a, a stronger example. Although there's things about that movie that don't hold up for me anymore either, which is sad too, in a way, but I mean, maybe it's because you looked at this film and you were like, these people are too cool. <laughs> like this maybe, is not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's true. Someone like Rory Cochran, I guess. I don't know. But like, I I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you have an out for Rory Cochran. <laughs> apparently. But I, I, did you, I more did, or less did you feel like a, the man when he says, damn the man? Is that the issue? Uh, <laughs> yeah, even maybe, though you were in high school at the time, you're like, <laughs> oh, my opportunities are already gone. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've, beco- I've become that jaded, cynical parent who's I've become the man, you know, like, no, I haven't become a parent. <laughs> what am I saying? I, I'm not a parent. Yet. <laughs> not cool, uh, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, but like, I don't know the stuff with Brendan Sexton. Uh, every time he opens his mouth, I'm cringing. I don't know. Like, I just, I mean, there's I, very little point, anger in this movie and the that too. way that you saw in Times Square and uh, pump up the volume, like uh, some of the characters are miserable in their circumstances mm-hmm. but you don't feel that kind of like universality universe i can't say the word of wanting to kind of like break out or someone to understand them yeah it's funny this this i mean i think part of that is also because this is um was it carol i i don't know if i've ever said her name carol heikinen yeah. and it's it it's it's interesting to me because Jim, one film that we've talked about on another episode of Directors Club is um, one that has pump up the volume ties. Uh, that thing called Love, the thing called Love, the Peter Bogdanovich um, love triangle movie that's with right. Samantha Mathis in the lead, and um, that's written by uh, Carol Heikinen. And I want to say Alan Moyle did like uncredited script doctoring on it, also. So hmm. that might even be where they first meet, or. I'm not sure, but like that's that's the bridge between Pump of the Volume and Empire Records is them as writers on that film um, for Bogdanovich with uh, with Samantha Mathis in the lead. But then, yeah, I mean, it does reflect a different sensibility. But again, the, the, those concerns with like selling out and like exuberance of youth culture and the um, the the love of music and uh, maybe the concerns about the future. I mean, there's there's things that connect it to the the Moyle scripted ones. Um, but yeah, you're right that it is a much sunnier and less angry film. I don't know if that also is why generationally it speaks to, yeah, different sensibility than the Gen X sensibility it speaks to a millennial uh, youth 
maybe in a different way. I don't know. I mean, and I mean, you that, bounce off the movie the second that you realize about selling out and you're watching the studio film. You're like, you did sell out. <laughs> like, yeah, you made this movie. more or less. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's true. Yeah. You can't, you can't really say that a, a movie that's like pushed with a, a, uh, a gin blossoms lead single to, to sell it was really coming from a countercultural place. I, yeah. I also can't wrap my head around the fact that Anthony, uh, La Paglia is going to buy the store for $9,000. That's all it's going to cost. <laughs> yeah. Maybe all different times. Who knows? And yeah, apparently all, was... all of it can be put in a jar, a giant mm. yeah, glass jar, and just like, here you go. Uh, the store is bought. Happy ending. Everybody's happy. Yay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. This film well, takes place over a 24-hour period mm-hmm. in a record store. Did you guys ever work in like a big thing like this? I mean, I know, Bill, you worked in a video store. Did it I have like this for... kind of vibe? I worked for Barnes and Noble and it, I mean, that was not a, a music store, but I mean, that definitely was full of people working in a, in a chain environment that were only there because they liked the arts enough to make bad money. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I've worked in plenty of video stores and certainly the culture is familiar from oh, yeah. that as well. Oh yeah. Um, but I never worked in a chain video store. I've only worked in indie mom and pop shops. Um, never worked in a music store though, for better, or for worse. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had, but. No, I, I worked in video stores and just a couple of them. And certainly one, I don't know, they sort of aspired for more. They, uh, it, it's, it's funny though, because I do, I do remember there was the crossover between we're no longer box office video. We're now called movie gallery. And we had to change <laughs> oh everything. God. Did it have a cow mascot too? I mean, <laughs> God, was that you, right? <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, that's exactly what I had to do. I had to dress up in a cow outfit and stand outside and uh, promote wait, the... Uh, wait, you're, you're not kidding? <laughs> no, I am kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but lots of adventures. Certainly a lot of stories. We could do a whole sort of podcast spinoff about uh, video store memories, I'm sure. That's always something I thought would be fun to do with the many friends and film critics I know that have worked in video stores, but as we slowly crawl towards death, (laughs) (laughs) memories keep us satiated. I mean, uh, there's still video stores in Toronto. There's still two of them. Um, one of them, uh, my friend is a product manager at, and they have never been more popular, mostly because they have no competition anymore. Wait, Justin, have we established what was your what was your first exposure to Empire Records? Was this the first one you saw for Moyle? Uh, Probably. And I think I bounced right off of it. Uh, I remember seeing the DVD all the time and those like two for 20s when I would walk into the (laughs) dearly departed like HMV or Music World like box stores that sold a lot of physical media. And I had read about that. It was like a cult film online. And when I finally watched it, even though I was probably in my Kevin Smith obsession, it did nothing for me. I just couldn't connect to any of the characters. Like you say, they probably either felt too young or too old. Like one of those. Yeah. Where I'm like, nah, nah, this ain't doing nothing for me. And it's, I mean, I I know a lot of people have affinity for it. We keep saying this before we're about to criticize it, but I don't think it's a particularly funny film. Like, there's not really any big jokes. Like, if anybody really gets into it, it's mostly probably from, like, the vibe or the idea of what it represents. Yeah, I I think... Well, one thing I noticed this time, I mean, I, I, I find it agreeable. Like, I don't I don't yeah, dislike it. Like, I, don't, um, I don't hate it. I'm not like, ah, I represent something that, you know, was poisoned or never existed. It's just kind of there. 
Yeah. Well, I, I would say compared to the Kevin Smith films that it, it, it kind of has slightly more plausible female friendship angles. Yes. Um, it, it, it is not just the boys club vibe that you sometimes get in films like this. I mean, um, I think, I think, yeah, the, the, again, it's like really charismatic uh, ensemble cast, I think is a big part of why people like it. That and the music, I think, are probably why it has a cult following. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and, and I, I'm I'm a fan of Robin Tunney. I think she's one of the f- characters in this that I'm like, all right, I'd I'd be curious to learn more about her, and you know, but I I feel like it, it all gets kind of reduced to, oh no, suddenly yeah, Liv Tyler's we find out about her diet pill addiction. You know, I don't know, it's just like <laughs> yeah, sort of just thrown really in. out of left field, <laughs> right? I know. If I was taking speed, I could have good grades too. And it's like, well, oh, wait, what? <laughs> Well, it's also funny because, I mean, the way that the 80s style rock star is kind of critiqued again, it's like it. I mean, if if um, if pump up the volume is being kind of savage towards boomers, then the you know, the way kind of that white snake kind of rock music or, or whatever is kind of lampooned in empire records is making fun of like 80s excess i guess in a way what's weird about that kind of plot line that like a musician who's over the hills coming to their store is it's like they're like kicking a weird dead horse like he's not popular anymore (laughs) (laughs) and it's like ah yeah you stink and he's like i know i stink nobody likes me (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i think that that speaks to how like it's not trying to be edgy the way pump up the volume is Mm -hmm. like it's you're right that is a really soft target to attack (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 disappointing, and it, it's it's not necessarily the film's fault, but you can't use "Video Killed the Radio Star" anymore after "Take This Waltz." I'm sorry. That's just that's just. <laughs> it's weird I, that you. I almost expected it to be like kind of like a grunge rocker that sold out that was coming to the store, and mm-hmm. then when I realized, oh no, it's not. It's like kind of like an '80s guy. A um, yeah. When, Someone who probably had like a one hit wonder or something. I was like, okay, yeah, no, that, that's not quite as funny. <laughs> I guess the Guar moment's kind of funny. Oh, I love to... the Guar moment. That yeah. rocks. <laughs> probably introduce a whole bunch of people to Guar. You see that and you go, man, I need to see more Guar in my life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Ethan Randall does does his best. I, I mean, he also shows up in um, what can't hardly wait a couple years later. Oh, that thing you do as well. He's fine. He's fine in this. Like he doesn't grate on my nerves as much as some of the other characters. Oh, you mean did you say Ethan Embry? Oh, Ethan Embry. I'm sorry. You know what's funny? Like I had the uh, Wikipedia page open, and it mm-hmm. says Ethan Randall. But it, you're right. It's I <laughs> think he, he, he must mean, have changed. When his this name movie started, point. I was like, which but you know, Baldwin it, it, it is, is right, this as Ethan their boss. Randy. That's what he's known as now is Ethan Embry. Silly me. Yeah. Huh. Uh, but yeah, a- Anthony LaPaglia is like the most understanding boss in the world. No <laughs> kidding. This boss does not exist. No. You steal, you're gone. It's like, yeah, you're not going to be hanging out on a couch for the rest of the day. You're gone, without a doubt. Like, And right. I, I feel kind of bad that they're like, you know, like hunting down a kid that stole some stuff. Like any employee would probably be go like, who cares? Let him go. Yeah. And he, and he gets to come back and work there. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I think he's going to juvenile, del- you know, prison, they, they they mention as he's being like hauled off by the cops. It's a very eventful day for anyone listening to this who hasn't seen the movie. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, well, I, I kind of shrugged this movie off, to be honest, and I don't know if I'll ever go back to it for any reason outside. of. I'm sorry I couldn't come in as the young buck and be like, oh, yeah, Empire Records. It was great. My mole rats. 
<laughs> Hashtag Rex Manning Day. Oh yeah, that always goes viral. That that day, right? Uh-huh. April eighth. It's on uh-huh. a flyer, I think. It's the something Nirvana related. Might be. Um. Yeah. So certainly, Alan Moyle has had a varying career later on. With um. You know, we can certainly talk a little bit about some of the clunkers that came across his way that Bill was kind enough to sit through. But I'd rather end the uh, main reviews here on a high note with a little scene coming of age film that is also built around strong portrayal of female friendship to uh, to when I was watching. I couldn't help but thinking this. This is kind of like a Canadian ladybird in a way. And that is um, New Waterford Girl, which is uh I believe a script from Trisha Fish, who and it's very autobiographical. Uh, you know, a little, a little idiosyncratic at times. But the star of this film is Leanne Balaban, who, geez, is kind of like a combination of Winona Ryder and Natalie Portman um, when you see her in this. But she, you know, plays this kind of teenage, angst-ridden misfit in this small Canadian coal mining town in the. Um, I believe it's the mid 1970s and this town is, you know, rather poor and, you know, a lot of these citizens are very religious and, you know, she's basically just trying to find herself and form her identity and kind of separate herself from her parents and the family and just get out and, you know, have a a career and certainly uh, has a passion that her teacher is trying to fulfill in a way. And certainly that's a dated element we can talk about <laughs> with the We're relationship. Back to, you know, uh, Alan Moyles or tourist themes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there for He's sure. up in his movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, so, uh, um, uh, another like-minded girl moves into town, uh, moves across the street from her and, they form this bond together and they have a lot of interesting misadventures. There's a, a fake pregnancy subplot that's thrown in there later on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely sentiment in how things play out, but I feel like this movie earns it rather than just forces it in there. It, and, and yeah, I like how it takes a few shots at Catholicism and, and hypocrisy within this community and... There's um, good use of music here throughout, uh, certainly not as prominent. It's not like, here, that's the Gin Blossoms playing right now. But, you know, I, th- I feel like he wanted to get back in touch with his roots. And, you know, the, I think it's low key, but in all the right ways. I, I like just the relationships and certainly the performances here, especially from Leanne Balaban, who I'd be curious to see more from. Uh, but no, this is this is a really nice, sweet film that uh, mostly worked for me, but we can talk about a couple things that didn't, for sure. <laughs> Making a live in the old hard way Taking and giving my day by day I snow Line. 
having watched the entire filmography of theatrical features and even the, uh, straight to cable uh, features, this is um, one of his best films, I think, and, and maybe like close to the very top, really. I mean, it, I think it, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you know, like we could say it's like a return to like him as a Canadian filmmaker, you know, I mean, after the bad experience with not only Empire Records, but the gun in Betty Lou's handbag, you know, mm-hmm. he had a couple of bad studio experiences and this, this, it, it almost reminds me, I mean, I, I don't know, like this is kind of like a, a, a polarizing film to evoke, but I would just say like, I, I think about like when someone like Jean-Pierre Junet after the alien four thing went back and made Amelie in France mm-hmm. with like, you know, kind of like, a, like a return to, you know, home turf and something a little bit more modest and like, you know, presumably sincere. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's like, you know, going back with like a modest, charming youth picture, but like, but less, um, it feels like less obviously trendy than his other youth films. Like, you yeah, know, the period in the seventies. And I yeah. think it does a lot of favors to the film that he's not, you know, trying to put that backwards baseball cap on that. Like he's also <laughs> expressing the, point of view of the screenwriter which yeah, sure. allows him to kind of inject his weirdness or obsessions while having a really solid backbone of like emotional drama that speaks to someone's own lived in experiences yeah but it's also just as episodic as times mm-hmm. square Absolutely. or empire mm-hmm. records like it's not something that's like rigidly beat to beat to beat even though coming of age films are like very much like certain cliches are always going to be followed with a lot of them. And this one isn't like reinventing any wheels in any way, but I I mean, it's, yeah, it's just like a lot of well-written, well-observed little vignettes, you know, with, and, and again, like likable, likable characters, like, you know, strong casting really, I mean, adds a lot to it, but I mean, are these songs, I didn't really recognize that many of the songs on the soundtrack are these would would these be like on classic rock radio in Canada or are they oh or are they are more obscure? Listen, I am, as is said in the movie, uh, Ontario scum. So the, <laughs> not Nova Scotian. So I didn't really recognize any of the songs that were in this film. Yeah, no, I didn't either. I feel like I've I've heard some of them somewhere else and I'm not sure how or when or where. <laughs> I'm looking now. I'm like, is I'm there, to see a, the you list know, there. Patty Smith? Yeah, that's I know that. But unless, you know, it was the Canadian alt-rock of the 90s, like Sloan. No, I'm left out in the, you know, not anything that I was familiar with. Which I think, you know, Tommy like James, a lot of Alan Moyle film, this, yeah. this film is packed end-to-end with music, though. Yeah. Yeah. But because yeah. he doesn't have to, um, you know, live in the moment of when it was made, it allows it to feel more immediate in the way that his early films did because he's looking back to the 70s. Yeah, it's also like a a sexually aggressive character once she kind of you know you know gets comfortable with the idea of sexuality. I remember Amy Taubin was one of the uh, U.S. critical champions of that movie, hmm. um, New Water for Girl, and I think that just the way that it's not just making it about some kind of you know virginal kind of innocent like she's she's an innocent character, but like she's. Like it, it, it's kind of frank about sexuality in a way, but it doesn't feel like an exploitation film either. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just, I don't it, know. Like it's refreshing in that way. I wonder if again, that he was just like a little bit ahead of the curve in 1999 and that like a film like this couldn't find the audience that it needed, which led Alan to, you know, into his journeyman phase of his career, which is a real bummer because like 
when he hits a home run like this and he looks around and, you know, no one was paying attention. It's like if I was him, I'd be like, well, what am I supposed to do next? Like this is a great movie. And I mean, a lot of people, you know, they realize that at the moment, but it never seemed to be able to find its audience. Yeah, no. And it, but but if you look at the filmography of Alan Moyle, like he, sometimes the films are followed by, you know, years in the wilderness. And this, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever, you know, whatever modest impact it had commercially, um, you know, it sets him up as a steadily working, you know, director in Canada for at least, you know, mm-hmm. the first half of a decade. You he know. accepted those, uh, you know, for higher gigs after that. He was in the Canadian system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, I bet. I mean, I think that if somebody is tuning into this podcast because they know the three big or even two big, you know, youth films, you know, he made in Hollywood. I mean, find this one because it's mm-hmm. on it's on Amazon Prime and it's one of his best films. And I think it's it's, you know, it, I think it would still play well now if they ever did a retrospective on him. I think it would be the the uh, the obvious standout and, you know, film worthy of being rediscovered. I'm surprised it isn't better known. Honestly, I, I watched it kind of without any real knowledge of it having a any kind of um, critical acclaim. I guess it did get better critical notices than anything he made outside of Pump Up the Volume. Mm-hmm. No, that's definitely true. And I, I know that um, a podcast I listened to that I really enjoy called Podcast Like It's 1999 that covers all the films of 99 did an entire episode on this film and, you know, mostly had positive things to say and certainly um, had a, a very a very good interview with Leanne Balaban. Which, oh. which I, yeah, she didn't really do a whole lot um, after this, which is very interesting when we think of Robin Johnson as well. It just seems like one of those, yeah, commanding screen presences that you look forward to seeing in a bunch of movies, but that sort of didn't turn out that way necessarily. Um, but uh, she, she, she went to TV land, the Canadian yeah. television land. So. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, not to say that's you know doesn't mean that her career wasn't successful or anything i just mm-hmm. think she didn't um yeah find any necessarily any projects that she felt passionate about within the you know hollywood system or anything like that but um can't help but uh, <laughs> when i saw mark mckinney show up as the doctor i'm like oh yeah this is definitely from canada of course oh, yeah mark yeah. mckinney's it in is. It. <laughs> canadian as heck <laughs> yeah no 100 percent. no it's 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 a very sweet film it's sort of um I guess the red flag or at least something that would bring attention to people when they see it is just the uh, uncomfortable relationship between Andrew McCarthy's teacher and the student here. So um, that's one thing that they certainly bring up in that other podcast is just being like, "Uh, why did it have to go there? You know, why did it, why did that element have to be like, why did it have to, resort to him confessing his love for her at one point in a bar. And I kind of agree with that. I don't necessarily thought it had to go down that route, but I don't think it gets so gross and icky either by the end. You know, it's not like they wind up together or something. It's just kind of thrown in there in a way that I, I guess I just, you know, accepted in, in, mm-hmm. in, in just the fact that like, yeah, this, you know, especially when you're of that age, you do have attractions towards older people some, somewhat, or at least, you you know, maybe not even, it'd be, it doesn't have to be a sexual attraction. It's just a connection with somebody. And that is one of the DVD you. covers, like them kissing. I think it is, isn't it? Oh, no. 
Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way to go. <laughs> uh but, but everything else other than that. I mean, yeah, it is like the teenage experience, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, spoiler alert, like it ends with her moving beyond it. So Right. At least she's not weighted down by the experiences she had in New Waterford. Oh, you guys still there? Yep. Oh, yeah, we just need to take a breath. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So, um, Bill, what other films did you want to highlight at all, if any? I know you watched um, some more. Change, exchange, exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that any of them really worked Oops. too well for me, if I'm being honest. I mean, he follows that with Jailbait, which is a, a made for uh, i think it's made for mtv i know that it, it it's an r-rated film so i'm not quite clear on how that worked um but I, based on a real life uh situation um but it's it feels like it's trying to approximate something like election meets american pie like it's it feels mm. like very much like speaking to the teen movies of, of 90 of late 90s oh no um, i just read the summary of it uh-oh <laughs> Not again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, I mean, what what was the summary that you read? I'll tell you if it's a popular accurate. high school senior boy is accused of the statutory rape of a high school sophomore girl. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's it's I guess it's trying to be an edge. I, I thought of things like opposite of sex. Like mm. it's like that that kind of comedy. And the trailer um, is a real like boing like camera whipping all over the place. Like ooh, isn't this wacky? Yeah. yeah, I mean it's a kind of film that is definitely you know, aiming to be like a teen sex comedy and it has nudity and it has like, you know, slow-mo of like, you know, girls in bathing suits kind of stuff. And, and like a, a soundtrack that is like very much pop music of its moment. Like it's, I think this is where you start getting a lot more broad stylized comedy as opposed to the, the naturalism of even something like Empire Records, or let alone the early films. Like this is where they become a lot more, maybe mannered and I, they're not like his original screenplays at this point. So maybe that's just the material he's getting, but they, they become a lot more, um, a little more scripted sounding a little bit more, um, like more, maybe more handheld and canted angles. And it's just a little more wacky. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, he follows that with exchange, which is Stephen Baldwin and it's got comic Lachlan in it for a little bit. And it's, it's kind of almost, like maybe like a face-off in places like it's more like a a, uh, like a science fiction thriller it's not terrible it's just i don't know i mean it's at this point it's no longer feeling like alan moyle auteur and it's just like you know it's perfectly serviceable Mm -hmm. you know uh 2001 genre movie i feel like the new york setting and the terrorist angle in 2001 it comes before 9-11 but even the twin towers being in it and like talks about the safety of airplanes maybe the oh wow maybe there were things that made it like uncomfortable (laughs) at the time i'm not sure but it's kind of anonymous really it's not Mm. again it's like this it doesn't really get bad until a little later, but like say nothing is kind of like a gender flip take on fatal attraction. It's Nastasha Kinski who has an affair with a, uh, a smoothie yuppie type character played by William Baldwin, who then kind of starts becoming, uh, you know, destructive towards her, you know, like her, you know, her marriage that is starting to like, you know, get back on its feet after some tensions with alcoholism. And it's, 
it's very generic, you know, erotic thriller of like of an 80s style, but done in 2001. So it almost feels like older than it is. Hmm. Um, Man in the Mirror, the Michael Jackson story is a made for television movie about Michael Jackson that is really one of the worst films I've seen in recent years. It's it's difficult to watch on a lot of levels. It um, it just deals with things that went wrong in Jackson's professional life, like um, the uh, tensions over the uh, the occult imagery in the thriller video to the. Um, the accident with the fire when making that Pepsi commercial to tensions with his father over like, you know, kind of his obligation to touring with the Jackson five. It makes big, um, you know, emphasis on his uh, friendship with Elizabeth Taylor. And nobody looks kind of like the characters that they're playing in real life, which is very distracting. Michael Jackson is a very distinctive performer. So someone trying to do his dance moves kind of not so well. It's, it's very uncomfortable to watch and they can't clear any of the music from Michael Jackson. So it's just like these generic kind of R and B songs. And Do you hear like little bootleg riffs when they come in and out of scenes. No, yeah, yeah, no, no. It's not even like anything really even tries to be like a sound alike for any Michael Jackson songs. So it's, it's oh. just sounds like, I don't know. It just sounds like straight to straight to video, uh, urban romance kind of music from mm. like, you know, mid nineties. Uh, it's not good. Um, Weirdsville is, is also like, I guess that feels like it's trying to evoke the, the teen comedy uh, aspect of like something like empire records, I guess, but it's, it's maybe more a stoner comedy. If, if anything, it felt like a less witty cousin to something like go the Doug Lyman film, uh, yeah. um, but exploitation. Yeah, but it's just not. I don't know. I mean, it, the 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 most interesting thing about it to me was just like the aesthetic of it felt very much like like here's someone like doing their best to stay current with like the way things look, the way yeah. things are cut, the way things are shot. Like it's it's not somebody that you know his first movie was a 1977 with rubber you know rubber gun. Like it's somebody that like you wouldn't know had been in the game that long. Like it it feels mm. like. You know, I mean, it, it, it's journeyman work, but it feels like, well, he's still trying to make, you know, uh, commercial commercial product that doesn't call attention to itself, you know, in a, in, a, in a negative way. I mean, he's trying things that I, I don't know. I mean, I, it just doesn't work for me. Like it's too it's very wacky. Same same as something like jailbait. Like it's very. um yeah, just a lot, lot of lot of lot of outrageous scenarios and like played kind of broadly. But I tried watching kind of like Paul Schrader's Dog Eat Dog. Ooh. Where he's like, I, I I can do this. I can do crazy style. It's yeah. not. It's not quite as insane as Dog Eat Dog. Yeah, Dog Eat Dog is like somebody that is thoughtfully saying, "I'm going to make a crazy movie." Mm-hmm. Yes, but you <laughs> almost feel yeah, it, it's odd that alan moyle did go in that like wacky direction late in his career because there's almost nothing uh in his earlier films that would indicate that with empire records just being the tipping point where it's like not quite there yet but with one little push you can get to jailbait there's a little bit of of like screwball farce in the gun in betty lou's handbag oh yeah talk about which which is 
honestly, like I know Jim had warned me that this was a really bad movie. And if you watch it after watching Say Nothing and Man in the Mirror, the gun in Betty Lou's handbag seems to take on almost like a uh, a John Huston <laughs> or Howard Hawks kind of quality. Uh, but Woo! no, it's 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 definitely not it's definitely not great. But it's you know it's 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 professionally mounted. It's got people like Alfred Woodard and like it's got you know it's 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 fine you know mm-hmm. it's, it's i wouldn't it's just, say it's offensive or you know it's not like a god-awful movie i just didn't find it funny you know yeah yeah it's not that funny uh no, it's disappointing because yeah. i do like that cast you know and i was hoping for it to yeah kind of be like a sleeper screwball comedy of that era and just even if it's something like greedy you know like where everybody's like acting uh you know on uh, like at level 10 at all times or acting manic or something sometimes that can work for me especially you know even something like noises off or whatever just like when people are loud and crazy and screwbally i can get behind that especially at that time but i don't know i i was yeah. like oh shucks you know this is starting off with a librarian i should love it but <laughs> no it's not good it's not well written it's just kind of there and i think i think the screenplay is probably what really kills yeah. it yeah yeah and same with I think weird what we're leading towards is that like the alan moyle uh more comedic projects don't really do it for us <laughs> i guess I mean, you're right yeah like yeah. if the comedy comes from the kind of humanity and the real life events and something like new waterford girl then it can work or even there's you know there's humor in Times square but they're not like overtly comedic and that it seems that his kind of bent when he does those kind of films is that manicness that, you know, for some people like us, just uh, doesn't click. Yeah, yeah. Certain, certainly with Weirdsville, when I tried watching it, I'm like, I can't get I can't get through this. This is not <laughs> this is like the opposite of Jim Nip because it, it almost felt like something like spun or something like just the oversaturated look, the the the, the crazy wide eyed you know, out of a control West Bentley drug dealer character. I was just like, uh-uh, this is not going to be my thing at all. And I, you know, I want to root for the guy, of course, but I, I, it's, his heart's not in those projects, I don't think. I think he's just doing them because, again, you know, you have to pay the rent. So it makes sense. <laughs> in your next interview, he's like, no, all I wanted to do was Weirdsvilles and Guns and Betty Lou handbags. But oh, I had to no. do one for them, like pump up the volume. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but this was a blast. I'm so glad we got to talk about Alan Moyle. Um, you know, cause again, the obvious route is just like, well, let's just, you know, you know, talk about the, the ones that people certainly know and have a cult following, but bringing up stuff like Times Square and, and new Waterford girl, I think is every bit as important as, you know, mentioning pump of the volume for the, for the millionth time for me. <laughs> cause again, like I think those two films are, are have their strengths and uh, are, are ones that I'm going to go back to, you know, maybe just as much as I have with Pump Up the Volume. I think very easily I can provide my top three Alan Moyle films with it just obviously being Pump Up the Volume at number one, Times Square at number two, and New Waterford Girl at number three. I think mine would be the same. Um, I, I, I would probably I would probably put the rubber gun you know, at a tie with New Waterford Girl. I mean, I like them in such different ways. Sure. That it's hard for me to really rank them. But yeah, no, I, I do like those early those early films. Montreal, Maine is not him as a director, but I think that's also quite interesting. Yeah, um, I found it interesting to where I, I, yeah, I would go back and watch it again, especially if there's a better 
transfer at some point. There actually is a DVD with his commentary with him and Frank Vitale um, that I'd be curious to hear. And actually is a book on Montreal, Maine as well. There is. Yeah, yeah. You see it in Toronto bookstores all the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm definitely going to have to go uh, exchange, jailbait, gun and bed, lose <laughs> handbag. This you is a long rebel. I love you rebel. Movies, guys. <laughs> <laughs> nah, my list is as uh, unexciting as you. Uh, pump up the volume. Um, definitely. And then, yeah, Times Square. Because I like the like gritty realness. And New Waterford Girl. Eh, yeah, New Waterford Girl. I, 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 there's something kind of like immediate, maybe because I just watch it for the first time for this right. podcast. Mm-hmm. But and it's one that like it, it's such an easy recommendation film that you're like, oh, yeah, I can recommend New Waterford Girl. You haven't seen New Waterford Girl because no one's seen it. <laughs> Check this out. Yeah, I hope that one gets a second life, maybe a Blu-ray release down the, down the mm-hmm. road. There's a DVD out there, uh, which is like sixty four dollars. So. Oh, really? I own it. So. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's time to cash in. <laughs> right? No, I'm holding on to that one. I, I, It's a special film, and I think people should seek it out. But like you said, Bill, it, it is on Amazon Prime, right? People can stream it there? Yeah, people can stream it. And, cool. Uh, yeah. It says, that, it says it like that there's ads with it, but I don't remember any ads coming up when I watched it, so I'm hmm. not quite sure what the disclaimer's about, but... Yeah. yeah, I know they've sort of merged a little bit with what IMDb or something like they they offer free. Uh, it's almost like a Tubi version of <laughs> where they have yeah ads when you can stream certain movies through Amazon Prime. I don't know. They're all every, everybody's merging with everybody in these days. I don't know what how to keep up with these things anymore. There's so many streaming services, but God bless them, especially something like Tubi. You want Tubi, especially around Halloween season. Everything's on Tubi, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Everything well, good is on Tubi. They don't have The Man in the Mirror, the Michael Jackson story, though. I had to rent that on DVD from Netflix. <laughs> wow. Really? Wow. Old yep. school. Wow. Jack yeah, to the yep. State doesn't want people to get out and watch The Man in the Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. It's, it, it was actually the one that was the most challenging to find of everything that I watched. <laughs> mm. oh, God bless you, Bill. Thanks for mm-hmm. thanks for taking one for the team. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's not a problem. I I just yeah want people to know that there's not some buried treasure in the in the later anonymous you know journeyman career. I mean, after new to, new water for a girl, you can just be like yeah he finished his career in 1999 as a director and then <laughs> went know, out on top and then went out on uh, top. Yeah, he teaches classes now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I'll get in touch with him again. I'd certainly like to know what he's up to. <laughs> if anything, well, he was he was connected to a film that I don't know if it ever got made or what the status was. That was I I thought it was a documentary, but something. What, what does he have? I have like a, a diabetic. Yeah. yeah, about diabetic patients. Yeah, it, it right. looks like one that's been on his IMDb for like a long time, though. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember Frank Perry. Speaking of people that you know started off strong and went into like a journeyman kind of phase with some undistinguished projects. Um, you know, his last film was a documentary about his own battles with like his health battles with cancer uh, on the bridge. It's like total out of character from the rest of his filmography. And I always wondered if Alan Moyle was doing something similar that was like a total break from his kind of narrative features into dealing with the health issues that he's, you know, had to contend with in recent years. On paper, it seemed like not a million miles from that, but I have no idea if it's even something that he's kind of complete. Yeah. That's that's been the outstanding credit on his resume since, God, several years now. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I certainly have ideas for Pump Up the Volume. 
2022. <laughs> I don't know what. The, just like the idea. You t- yeah, the I remember idea. you talking about like ideas for Pump Up the Volume 2 with him in your interview. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he's I don't know if I don't know if he's passionate about it really, to be honest. I I I I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, what would yeah, what would a hard Harry be like in this modern day and age of everybody having a YouTube channel and everybody having a podcast, you know? I I, I think I'd his name curious. is Bill Burr, the you know top solo. <laughs> it's the Joe Rogan story. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> that would be yeah. the worst version. Well, the um, angry populist radio personality is mm. not necessarily, yeah, you know, always going to be uh, who you want the movies about. Now, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I think some people certainly like the idea enough to run with it, and maybe do a mini series or some sort of Netflix show. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how I feel about it, but we'll see. I'm shocked. They haven't done a pump up the volume, like streaming something or other. Yeah. Well, especially when, you know, that, uh, that karate kid, what is that? Uh, what's what's that called? Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. Yes. Once I saw the popularity of that, I was like thinking about that, honestly, where, Maybe somebody could run with this idea. I mean, uh, would the show be like Christian Slater still doing the show? Because <laughs> that's what be, Cobra Kai is. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Like, he has to compete now with all the podcasters out there. Like, uh, <laughs> Mark Marin shows up for an episode, you know? Yeah, he's like his nemesis. He's like, you get out of the game. No more <laughs> radio show. Lock the gates. <laughs> I'm hard Harry. All right. Oh, boy. We'll see. We'll see if, um, hey, he's put out a lot of great films, so grateful for that and grateful for both of you to, to, to join me today. This was a, a wonderful and friendly conversation that felt very Canadian in nature, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, my pleasure. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, this is great to talk to you know, both of you, um, Yeah, especially about a director that had a great impact on my life, so... Let's learn more about where people can find you. Plug away. Justin, where can we find more work from you out there in the world of the internets? <laughs> uh, you can find me on the Important Cinema Club every week and uh, all the other stuff that I do. I would just recommend following me on Twitter. It's DeClue J, D-E-C-L-O-U-X on the letter J. And I'll post all the new stuff as it comes out, all the multitude of podcasts or no YouTube video, so I'll pop up there. And you can also follow all the movies that I'm watching on Letterboxd, and it's just my name, Justin DeClue. Oh, I better make sure I'm following you both there, here, there, and everywhere. I certainly will. And Bill, where can we yeah, find um, you? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as my uh, Supporting Characters podcast is on there, and I'm on Facebook as well. Um, you can find my... Uh, episodes of supporting characters at you know uh, www.nowplayingnetwork.net including uh, long form origin story episodes on both both of my co-hosts on this episode <laughs> uh jim and justin are both uh veterans of supporting characters um you can also find my old blue velvet podcast if you're that hardcore about uh blue velvet that you want to hear crew people including a uh, a cameraman that worked on empire records um but um yeah that's where you can find me on there and also on directors club i guess sometimes now too <laughs> Oh, thank goodness for that. Um, as far as November goes or what the next episode's going to be, uh, I'm just going to leave it. I'm just going to leave everybody in suspense. 
you know, tis the season, right? Let's, I'm just going to keep it scary. Who knows? Maybe I'll do it. Dur- <laughs> I, I was going to be like, Christmas? Tis the season. <laughs> Not yet. Jumping Not quite. Not quite. No. Uh, who knows? We'll see. I, I, I have ideas, and certainly it'll be a, another director with, you know, a modest filmography, because... Once we get to yeah the holiday season, especially after Thanksgiving, it's nothing but award season. It's nothing but let's catch up with all the big contenders for you know the Oscars and all the various mm-hmm. awards. So it gets it gets a little overwhelming <laughs> after yeah like like all of December. It's pretty much just like I gotta see as much as I possibly can. Ah, but in a, perfect in a good month way for me to tackle Jean Luc Godard. <laughs> right, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Which may or may not be coming up. Shh. Yeah, that's true. We don't know. Exactly. All right, everybody, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com and you can send me an email over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And oh, there's there's even a Patreon if you're feeling generous and want to, you know, throw a monthly donation my way and helps the network. It helps the shows and really would appreciate it. That's patreon.com slash directors club. And yeah, follow me on Letterboxd and Twitter and even Facebook. People are still on there for some reason. Including myself. Listen, we're old. We're all on Facebook still. <laughs> of course. Yeah, we, exactly. And we don't find Empire Records that funny. Right. <laughs> yeah, far along. Damn the man. Damn the podcasters in this case. All right. Thanks again, guys. This was a blast. And uh, yeah, I'll see you all very soon. Stay safe. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you.